0: Louder thrill me. Black is midnight on a moonless night. Bitches leave. Truly. Fucking hold
1: up, hold up well then there, motherfucker! It's got a death curse.
2: Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> <laughs> Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. Proverbity! <laughs> <dish. laughs>
0: Oh, damn enchiladas! These counts were laughing.
1: Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burnin', head turnin', ass kickin', my cheese mo' drippin', master podcast, and mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested, superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane bringing you another edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. It's that special time of year again where love is in the air and we invite all of you out there in the Rant Army to spend Valentine's Day with the man of your dreams, or in this case, Nightmares. Now, this has been a tradition we've held since the very beginning, but tonight we're also going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of A Nightmare on Elm Street with an in-depth retrospective of the inaugural exploits of everybody's favorite dream slasher, Freddy Krueger. So load up on caffeine, don't fall asleep, but first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Hey, wrestling fans. This is Eddie Shepard, one half of the guys over at Wrestling Recommendations telling you to check out our podcast each week myself and my best friend travis lassiter dive in with a deep retrospective and watch along to some of our favorite matches we have created a list of over 200 plus matches spanning over 40 plus years we take all those matches we throw them into a randomizer and the very next week that's the match we cover check us out at Wrestling Recomm on Twitter, R-E-C-O-M-M, and Wrestling Recommendations on Facebook. And you can find us wherever podcasts are available. And let us bring our wrestling recommendations to you.
2: Do you love metal? Are you a nerd? Well, if I got the podcast for you, it's the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast. Look back to me, Metal Thrashing Mind. And every episode, I'll be bringing you fans from the world of underground heavy metal, just waiting for you
1: to hear them. So go check us out on all major streaming
2: services as the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast.
1: Come on down to Mass by Lance Premium Friday the 13th Custom Made Hockey Mask Down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mass by Lance Go order one now,
0: boy! Yee-hoo! Hey assholes, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the rants from the Black Lodge Podcast, here to
1: sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash?
0: That's not a problem. Sell your blood. Sell your children. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get
2: the money, as long as you give it to us. Would you like a t-shirt? A mug or a sticker to show that you're a true friend and a member of the
0: Rant Army? Well, all you gotta do is go to RantArmy.com, and if you don't buy something, then fuck you. Dive into the new action-packed thriller, Mr. Black. This is a story about a mafia hitman, Mr. Black, whose latest target is nothing like he's had to deal with before. Mr. Valentino is a man that's into the dark arts, who calls on the Grim Reaper to kill Black. However, the spell fails to be fully successful, as he is still murdered. Now, Death himself is pursuing Mr. Black relentlessly. Now who can Black turn to for help? Who can stop a curse like this? Get Mr. Black on Amazon Books or as a digital download on Kindle.
1: Once a generation, an idea will come along and revolutionize its industry. With the slasher genre on the wane, it would claw its way back from nightmare to a sweet dream of relevance and profitability in 1984. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and tonight... We're going to lock the door, we're going to stay up late, we're going to grab our crucifix, and we're never going to sleep again, with an in-depth retrospective of the godfather of supernatural slashers, 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. However, I do not dare walk these deadly streets of Springwood on my own, joining me in the Black Lodge to discuss all things Freddy Krueger. Give it up for the wielder of the diamond-studded fuckhammer, and the boozerweight champion of podcasting. Give it up for Fat Tony. I'm your boyfriend now, rant army. <laughs> so let's just hit the ground running. Uh, 1984, November 16th, A Nightmare on Elm Street is released. Now, before we talk about the financial success of Nightmare on Elm Street, we got to talk about a film that was released a week earlier on November 9th, 1984. Do you have any idea what that movie was? Silent Night, Deadly Night. Exactly. And I don't think people realize how this movie single-handedly led to Nightmare on Elm Street becoming an absolute box office smash. So Cliff Notes version: there was a concerted effort because of a a television preview that depicted Santa Claus raping and shooting people with guns, and like he does like, every just, year, just like the real Santa Claus. And uh, it had buzz like no slasher movie. It had buzz for in a long time. It did really, really well, and then got yanked from theaters. Cowards,
2: but thankfully.
1: So my, my question to you is, like, do you think that if this movie, that being Silent Night, Deadly Night, had stayed in theaters, would it have overshadowed A Nightmare on Street, at least in the
2: opening weekend first couple <clears throat> weeks? Yeah, it absolutely would. Uh, ticket sales, they might have had a bump from word of mouth because the superior movie is a nightmare on Elm Street. Well, no, no duh. Um, but yeah, I'm just saying, like it, it would, it, it people were left with a horror hard on. They pulled the big movie everybody's talking about, so like, well, we'll go see this other thing.
1: I think that, especially back then, if your if your target audience is teenagers, and there is a concerted effort from mothers' groups to say. You shouldn't see this movie. Oh, absolutely! I yeah. I think that at the very least, you're going to see that movie. People the the box office for that movie would have been much bigger than it ended up becoming because it got removed from theaters. But I don't know that that necessarily would have hurt Not Mernell Street, but they're not being competition. People Hellful. vote. People vote with their dollars, and exactly. and uh, Freddie got the top billing on that regard,
2: and had. Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 not got pulled. Part 1. Part 1. I'm saying, I'm going in to talk about say, Part say 2. It. Silent Night, Deadly Night had not been pulled out uh, and they'd made more money and had been more of a success. They might have tried to make a quality Part 2 instead of the god-awful masterpiece. The the glorious garbage day part two. I
1: honestly don't know that it's you like could... like part one and a half. I don't know that you could make a better sequel than Silent Night, Deadly <laughs> Night 2. Well, they
2: would have tried to be, do done quality instead of basically a clip show version of the first one with some of the most ridiculous kills from the, the brother later. They would have tried to make a logical, successful sequel. Well, we... Then we, Brian Brenner would not have ever started in Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. That's
1: true. That's true. So, for no other reason than in helping out our buddy... Thanks, moms. Yeah. Th- thank you, uh, uh, Satanic Panic uh, Mothers Groups, for for allowing uh, Santa Claus <clears throat> to remain safe and uh, not be on the silver screen raping and murdering people.
2: As he really does. <laughs> How old were you
1: when you saw Nightmare 1?
2: Man, I was eight or nine years old, tops. There's no way because I had seen Silver Bullet first. That was my first R-rated horror movie, and then I I saw Part Three first on Cinemax, and then I think it was one of those summers when I was left home alone, way too young. Here's your two seventeen. Go up to Pete's place, rent a rent a video. It was movies and more, but Pete was his boss who owned it. So, and I'm like, I'll watch Nightmare on Elm Street one. Didn't really. It unsettled me. It's not like Texas Chainsaw Massacre where I was fucked up for life and know that a chainsaw wheeled maniac will come out of the woods to kill me like I'm certain will happen. But I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, God. And th- this is God. And, you know, after seeing part three, you know, where he's out and it's the almost MTV Freddy phase. And this one, he's in shadows and dark and just mean.
1: I, I don't remember... Ever
2: seen this movie for the first time? It's one that you've seen it so many times it blends. But it, I'm pretty certain I rented it from uh, Movies and More.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I if I rented this, if I saw it on Cinemax. I, I have absolutely no idea. I do know that I had seen at least three and four before I saw part one, but I don't have any concrete memory of it, so I can't be as objective, you know, uh, about it in terms of like how it affected me that first time. But you know, we're going to be going at a, a forty-year uh, viewpoint of having seen it, you know, countless times. And somebody, s-
2: somebody else besides this movie is going to turn forty this year too.
1: Oh well, let's let's save that uh, tragedy <laughs> for another day. Number uh, Nine Street was filmed on an estimated budget of. One million eight hundred thousand dollars. That's very, very low budget, especially considering all of the mechanical and makeup effects in the in the The Blood Room. Oh, we'll talk about it. Uh, Opening weekend, it made one million two hundred and seventy-one thousand dollars. nearly made back its budget first weekend, but I I think that you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night was still in the theater, so. You know the the controversy creates cash, so yeah. there's probably not as many eyes on it but if you adjust that for inflation, it's still three million seven hundred twenty uh, seven or sorry to say that again three million seven hundred and twenty seven thousand three hundred and ninety four dollars and five cents so still still a pretty good return, considering yeah. the money invested into it. However, with no silent night daily night in the way, it's Worldwide gross, $25,685,134. Now, that's in 1984 money. Adjust that for 2024, 40 years later, $75,325,425.41. That's a near $100 million movie on, you know, a nothing budget.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it deserves to be so. Like, Wes Craven, Love Him, RIP. But he had his hits, and when he when he hit, he hit it out of the fucking part. Absolutely. What
1: do you think the IMDb rating of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 is? 6.5. 7.4 out of 10. Oh, see, that's good. Solid, solid rating, uh, even for, yeah. you know, I mean, taking into consideration this is a movie that...
2: Horror snob, or yep, uh, general movie snobs hate horror.
1: Yeah, but I, I think that th- this movie has always been a little more appreciated by critics because it did something different. Rotten Tomatoes, what do you think they have it at? Uh, 78. 95%. Wow, okay. Audience scores, 84%. So that's where, where the critics rated higher than the actual yeah. audience. Yet again, I think that comes Scott down to... I don't I just have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea what Scott feels about Nightmare 1. I know he, I know he likes some of the sequels. But, you know, I, I think that it, it is sort of a... It does fall into prey in terms of, like, it is a little dated, some of the fashions and stuff. But I think the themes are immortal.
2: I want to say a lot of people who saw this were were like us and saw this after seeing, like, three and four, you know, where Freddy's front, center, out there, the special effects, which in the first one were great. But still, you know, three, four, and five were Fangoria movies. So, you know, articles and articles about this big special effects set piece or that big special effects set piece. And this one has the Road Blood Room and the Hoverkill, but, like, it, it's more of a movie. And then if oh, somebody's... That's, if that's somebody's, a good point. Yeah. That,
1: that is a good point. There was more of a concerted effort for this to be a real movie in terms of telling a logical story. Yeah. And it hinges a lot less on the surreal and things Images that the... And kills and stuff. The later sequels kind of hinge on. Well, I love both of those yeah. things. But th- this is a more comprehensive, uh, almost a character study into, you know, a girl. And we don't
2: see Freddy a lot. Freddy is in the shadows. Freddy is not brightly lit like he is in 3 and on. All right. Metacritic, we usually rate 27% them. 27% because they're hipsters and they're going the other hipster way about well, We
1: usually rate them as being the worst, but I got to tell, tell it like it they is. is. They're, they're more right this time than they normally are. They have it 76 out of 100. Still lower than I would put it, but yeah. I, for them, that's a, I'll, I'll consider that a win. All right, the one we generally agree with the most, Google users, what do you think? 93. 87%. Oh, you
2: let me down a little. But, you know, again, like I'm saying, most people watching this movie saw sequels first and might have been a little disappointed in its darker tone, less Freddy. And, you know, they just don't appreciate the hotness that is Heather Langenkamp's girl next door. However, the one that we
1: absolutely will bend the knee to and the aggregate that we know best represents our listening audience, because it comes from our listening audience in the Facebook group, gave you two options. A Nightmare on Elm Street, part one, good. A Nightmare on Elm Street, part one, bad. What do you think? It better be
2: 100%. It's not 92. 88%. God, these fucking Gen Z kids. I'm sorry, it's not, you know, Ghostface, even though I love (laughs) Scream. Sorry, there's no meta jokes.
1: I do think that it probably comes down to pacing, and Freddie is not in the movie a lot, but I think those things are positives, yeah. Uh, as opposed to negatives, but I mean perspective is you know, is what it is. I bet the people who voted
2: against it think "Bye Bye Man's a good movie. <laughs> if the, uh, <laughs> just just for record, if
1: you like the "Bye Bye Man," go ahead and leave our fucking group, yeah. please,
2: please do. Unless you like it ironically because it's so bad. That's oh yeah, hard. well
1: we're all in favor of so bad it's good. Oh yeah. Alright, on Fat Tony's hit list, this is where it gets a little complicated. We have three or four or five. Um, depending on how you view <laughs> the ending. Uh, we'll talk about that later on in the episode. This uh this averages to roughly one kill every twenty two point seventy five minutes. So Number Num Street is not a body count series. Quality it's quality over quantity. But it is sort of in that butter zone of like the the yeah. max amount you would expect from a nightmare film. Yeah. Uh, on Stank Dick Eddie's Titty Tally, we have one, but just barely, and it's a body, body double. double. Big thanks to stuntwoman uh, Christina Johnson for sharing your hot hooters, but I will <laughs> be forever heartbroken that it wasn't actually Heather, because as know. a kid, I will tell you, um, I put some miles on my Peter. Oh yeah, thinking that was Heather Langen Camp. I'm, I'm, I would jack
2: five thousand mile, or just to <laughs> jack off at her door. I mean, so many miles. Lover.
1: Uh, Nineteen eighty four was a banner year for horror films, and particularly when it comes to the slasher genre. So, will Freddy claim the crown, or will he drown in a sea of genre oversaturation? To find out, we're going to have to take a trip back to the middle of the 80s and dissect the stiff competition of 1984. Fat Tony, if you would be so kind, would you read out our list of stiff competition
2: for this hallowed year of horror? I think of one movie that better be on here. Oh, we're going off the rip. Great. Judge, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Children of the Corn. Don't open till Christmas. Fatal games. Not even a little bit of memory of that. I don't know. It's too much saturation. Firestarter. Friday the Thirteenth. The Final Chapter. Gremlins. The Initiation. Monster Dog. Starring Alice Cooper. Oh yeah. Okay. Now I, I now I remember what that one is. Night of the Comet. Razorback. Rocktober Blood. Silent Madness in three D. Oh. <laughs> she threw me off. <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night, Splatter University. Are you only doing slashers? Because I'm missing a movie on here. Well, okay, what are we missing? Ghostbusters. Okay, well, it's not Ghost- really... It should be on here. I, if you put Ghostbusters on it's there... It's
1: definitely the number one. It's going to be number one because it was the number two film overall in the year. And when you take into consideration how many times it's been re-released, it's number un-busted.
2: one. You just got unbusted.
1: Well... I didn't put it on there. And yeah. I didn't, you know what else I didn't put on there? Gremlins. Actually, no, I take Yeah, I did put, I d- you put Never Gremlins. mind. I did put Gremlins. But Gremlins is a little more cut and dry, even though it's a little more of a comedy. But Ghostbusters,
2: it, I just didn't feel comfortable putting it on there because... You didn't want to sully its precious name with all this, this drag. I, see I, like, I
1: like a lot of these movies, uh, but no, there is no comparison. No. All right, uh, of, the, let's say the top five, uh number Elm Street, where does it land?
2: Five or four tops.
1: All right, number five, Night of the Comet with $14,418,922. I just re-watched Night of the Comet pretty recently. It it's fucking fantastic. That movie absolutely holds up. It's like yeah. a, a quality, quality movie. Uh, number four, Children of the Corn, which does not hold no. up. Uh, creepy, like creepy the... ginger ginger kill uh, kid. Um, uh, Cordy know. Gaines, he's great. We have your woman. Fourteen million five hundred sixty-eight thousand nine hundred eighty-nine dollars coming in at number three. Nightmare on Elm Street, twenty-five million six hundred eighty-five thousand one hundred thirty-four dollars. Number two, Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, thirty-two million nine hundred eighty thousand eight hundred eighty dollars. And number one, obviously, it's Gremlins Damn. with 153 million eight hundred ninety-eight thousand eight hundred ninety dollars. 1984. Yes. Now, just think about think about this. How much bigger Ghostbusters was? Yeah. To that, so
0: <sighs>
1: what a fucking time to be a movie fan. 84. Uh, the year of my birth uh, one of those years I I, I love so many of the movies that came out like
2: 81 you know Evil Dead and all those other great oh, we were born in the best we were, time we had the best two
1: years the stars aligned uh, praise be uh, the <laughs> for... <Hail Oden. laughs> all father for Halo right 1984 wasn't just a banger year for film it was a penultimate year for the distributor turned movie making empire of new line cinema so let's go from page to screen Normally, this is where, at the point of the retrospective, where we kind of discuss the development of the script, and I'm going to hold off on that till we get to Wes Craven. I think the real story here is Nightmare, uh, Nightmare, uh, New Line Cinema and its evolution from B-movie distributor to Academy Award-winning studio. New Line Cinema was founded by Bob Shea in 1967, mm-hmm. and after some... Varying success, New Line scored their first big win when they acquired the rights to Reef for Madness in the early 70s. First question, have you seen Reefer for Madness? Oh, hell yes.
2: Millions of times. Uh, Millions of times. I remember
1: seeing that, um, oddly enough, and I don't, I'm, this is something I don't know that I should even say, and I will, I will censor his name. But I had a teacher in high school <laughs> that, let me borrow a VHS about this, because I had said that you know, I loved So Bad It's Good movies. So nothing wrong with brah, that. Brah, brah, brah. Thank you so much for uh, perverting my uh, my mind. It's I enjoyed the fucking word. Out of it. Um, he didn't try to touch a butthole, did he? He did not. Okay, good. He could he couldn't have got it if he wanted it. <laughs> Hashtag sassy. <laughs> uh, fast forward to 1983, and Bryanston Distribution Company, aka the fucking mafia, lost the rights to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you want more information about that, check out our. Three and a half hour behemoth, one of our best episodes. It's on our, YouTube, our, our five year anniversary episode, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can all hear about all the the uh, the horrible injustices that the cast and crew dealt with, having to be funded by the mob.
2: Sometimes the means the ends justify the means.
1: The mob's loss was New Line's gain, as they picked up distribution for the movie, and it was incredibly financially successful. And you mentioned it just a minute ago, nineteen eighty one. They they also picked up the distribution rights for a little movie called The Evil Dead, which was uh, the first real big VHS rental hit. Oh, yeah. So there's a groundswell going on. Now, with this influx of cash, New Line was in a position to start producing films, including John Waters' film *Polyester*. They also did the Jack Shoulder movie, Alone in the Dark. Shout out Uh, to our buddy Jack Shoulder. And they were both incredibly successful financially, but... New Line's still in a position where, you know, they're they're breaking even. They've got a little money in the bank, but they're not quite self-sustainable. Yes. Then, this happened. Now, Marnell Street co-producer Sarah Risher had this to say. We had made three or four films, small films, all of which were able to sell and make our money back, but none of them did particularly well. This is the point where New Line became... Under their moniker, what do you know? The moniker I'm referring the to, the House of Freddy Bell, exactly. So when people talk about that, you got to remember, New Line they had Ninja Turtles, they had House House Party. Um, there were probably a couple of others here or there that were mon- uh successful, but a Nightmare on Elm Street really put them on the map. And fast forward. They're making Academy Award winning films with the Lord of the Rings trilogy oh, yeah. and hugely successful movies like the Austin Powers series. And now they're owned. Uh, there was a Warner Brothers merger, which, you know, that was a big deal in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. And now they're like this international conglomerate, Warner Warner Media, Warner, Warner Discovery, like there's been this just they they keep accumulating all these other things, so they're they're a huge powerhouse in Hollywood. And unfortunately, uh, I mean, for a time, Robert Shea got to kind of ride high off that, but uh, during the mergers, he kind of got forced out. And Warner
2: Brothers keeps making bad mistakes, so that doesn't surprise.
1: Yeah, you know, they're, yeah, the 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 W. What does it call it? The um, uh, the DCEU has been a complete uh, nightmare of hey, um, reboots and false starts. Um
2: James Gunn he's coming in.
1: James Gunn has never made a bad never. movie. I hope not that, even Tromeo
2: and Juliet.
1: I'm hoping that this is not the, the series of events that leads to his downfall, because I've I really enjoyed everything he's done. All right, so here's a multi-part question. Number one, could New Line have survived just being a distribution company
2: i mean probably there were plenty of horror schlock being chugged out by people they could have picked up some movies they would not have grown to what they are but they probably could have stayed in business you know just not being like super rich you know mega powers
1: i kind of think that they
2: they, they might have peed out eventually like you know republic pictures Lionsgate, and stuff like that like trimark they lasted for a while and eventually went away
1: yeah, I mean it's really a position you have to kind of be consistent and understand how to work on a budget like like Troma. Troma's been in business since the 70s and yeah. they started off as a distribution but the the reason they were able to survive and weather everything is that they were um primarily producing their own wonderful schlock. Not that New Line has ever made anything as good no, as Troma never. has ever made, but um so not Moneau Street I just want to get your take on it like how how important it was for them all to important. grow
2: it was it was everything they needed it was and I'm sure we'll get into the back forth playing Wes and Bob uh, to um, it's all important to get a franchise to get a base to build a foundation of things uh, <laughs> to get it you know out. And something to really get the legs on like this, and honestly, that they made four house party movies. That made a but they needed franchises. Well, and then, fuck them for Ninja Turtles three.
1: Yes, Turtles Ninja Tur- Oh, I don't even like Ninja Turtles two, but it is far and
2: away better than 4. I didn't like it, but I'm not like cussing them for.
1: Well, okay, it's it's a long told tale that New Line kind of lucked out by taking on Nightmare on Elm Street because it has been. Just like it just was turned down by every studio in Hollywood. Wes Craven had this to say The one guy who thought the script was interesting was Bob Shea. I remember showing it to him. uh, I remember showing it to Sean Cunningham, who did Friday the 13th. He was my first producer. And he said, I hate to say it, but nobody's going to be afraid of this because it's a dream. They'll know it's a dream, so they won't be afraid. And it went around Hollywood for three years. Bob took a huge risk. He leveraged essentially his entire business on the potential of Nightmare One. He had this to say. I thought it was incredibly inspired because it had this great marketing hook that was a familiarity to the eerie world because we've all had nightmares. Everybody sleeps. So, devil's advocate. If you had been in Bob Shay's shoes, could you have seen the high-concept money-making of this? Or would you have been like a lot of the other people and kind of this is untested waters? Why dump a bunch of money into something that may completely flop?
2: I mean, I've always been a safe bet kind of guy. I've never been one to take risks. Bob Shay, for all his flaws, he's pretty good about knowing, like, you know, when to take the shot. Uh, well, I mean, Lord of the Rings is the yeah, perfect example. It's going to be two movies, and he's, he's like, like, no,
1: no, do it. Uh, here, here's here's an a an empty bag of money. Here's and, infinite dollars, <laughs> and, and go and make all three of them at once. That's that was unprecedented. Unprecedented. Yeah. Now making two movies back to back, like even that really didn't happen. Like Back to the Future two and three were shot back to back, and there there are other right. instances. Oh, the the cinematic classic, um, uh, <laughs> fucking Sleepaway Camp two and three oh, well, were yes. shot back to back,
2: but the... Hey. Nightmare 4 director Rennie Harlan is doing like the third and fourth Strangers movies back to back as we speak.
1: Well, good for you, Rennie Harlan. Uh destroyed
2: Carol, Carol Co.
1: Oh, uh, yes, he did. He destroyed did. that with um, Davis Cutthroat and, Island. Yes.
2: But yeah. He's going to bring it all back.
1: I don't want to get too far off topic, but a real funny thing about Cutthroat Island so uh, it came out around the time that like all the OJ stuff was going on. <laughs> And um OJ had a new girlfriend and he took his girlfriend to that movie and ever and like I remember the tabloids were like, Man, you you are fucking tone deaf. You take your one your new girlfriend who <laughs> I didn't know that. To, I to see that. Cutthroat Island. Okay. Oh man. Back to Bobby Shay's. Um, Bob's gamble absolutely paid off and he's he deserves a lot of credit credit for having faith in this project. However, some critics have been kind of I pointed out the fact that maybe Bob has taken too much credit for some things. Um, New Line gained the reputation as being a director-friendly uh, company. Bob had this to say about being quote-unquote hands-on. I always did think that a producer had something to offer besides raising money, and I didn't get into the business because I wanted to make a lot of money. I got into the business because I wanted to entertain people. <sighs> I- I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that Bob Shea is a creative person, and I, I don't know that I would put him in charge of a lot of creative decisions. We'll talk about some of those th- things that affected the movie later on. But, I mean, he, he knows a good idea, or at least he has a track record of yeah. when he sees a good idea, knowing it. So my question, I guess, is how much credit does Bob Shea deserve in the success of Nightmare on Elm Street?
2: Well, as to, as a franchise, he deserves all the credit. Wes Craven wanted this to be a one and done movie. He wanted Nancy to have truly defeated them, and that's it. No sequel, no franchise. Bob Shea's like suck a dick. <laughs> I'm gonna ride this uh, cash cow for miles. Uh, so he gets credit for that. But you know, at the same time. He's not. He's not a hundred percent. He wanted to hire just some extra for Freddy in the sequel.
1: Well, he he was he very down on that. He was but, very frugal. He knew yeah. he knew how to stretch a penny for all its worth, and that's one of the reasons they were able to survive as yeah. long as they were without you know a, a huge success.
2: But he for for Nightmare on Elm Street as a franchise, he he gets. 40% credit and Wes Craven gets 60 for the invention. Like, that's how big of an impact Because, Like I said, there's no franchise without Robert Shack.
1: Well, uh, kudos, Mr. Shea. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the the brainchild of Mr. Wes Craven. And uh, Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind, would you read the synopsis for his 1984 mega hit, A Nightmare on Elm Street?
2: In Wes Craven's classic slasher film, several Midwestern teenagers are fall prey to Freddy. Sorry, it's Fred Krueger in the first one. They do say they Freddy. Do pray. Yeah, one, two, Freddy's coming for in the song. It's it's inconsistent. Robert England, a disfigured midnight mangler who preys on teenagers in their dreams, which in turn kills them in real reality. After investigating the phenomenon, Nancy, the lovely Heather Langenkamp, begins to suspect that a dark secret kept by her and her friend's parents may be the key to unraveling the mystery. But can Nancy and her boyfriend Glenn, played by Johnny Depp, solve the puzzle before it's too late?
1: Uh, a few people involved in the horror genre have impacted the craft of horror more than the man behind the camera of A Nightmare on Elm Street. We have Wes Craven in the director's chair. Uh, let's just go through his laundry list of successes and and debatable fa- failures um last house on the left um absolute classic it's, it's, it's only a movie it's only a movie uh which that's where he and the combination of uh sean cunningham they they kind of they came together because uh sean cunningham produced that he did the hills have eyes uh uncontested uh classic oh, yeah. it's it's not in the texas chainsaw master realm in terms of like popularity but it's that kind of movie and it's sort of like the it's the it's the really good ripoff of of that uh serpent the rainbow which i absolutely love i think that may be one of his best films
2: movie i don't know what screen i'm just playing i just know you hate screen do you
1: know who's do you know who's in serpent the rainbow
2: would it be uh, Bill? Pullman?
1: Bill Pullman, who was in Spaceballs with Rick Moranis, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted, uh, a, a movie that we've done on the podcast before, which I personally think maybe, uh, full stop, his best movie. People under the stairs. Yeah, uh, shocker. Absolutely uh, wonky had a great and soundtrack. lopsided affair. But yeah, uh, it's like but I but I love it.
2: Dark movie about a family killer and just. Then, oh, the voodoo and the, the electricity scanner from X-Files. The
1: the uh, cartoon jumping through television. It's great, great stuff. He turns into a chair at one point. Yes. A recliner, like a barca lounger. A New Nightmare, which... Uh,
2: all, it's which, the best directed and written of all the Nightmare movies. I'm not going to say it's my favorite, but the direction and the screenplay, <clears throat> I think, are the best.
1: I, I think that it's... Uh, it's a movie that I didn't love when it came out, but I I love it now. It, it's a movie that is appreciated and valued. It's pretty
2: for adults. I, it's not aimed my, at teenagers. For, it's, it's, aimed at, it's definitely aimed at an older... It's, it's aimed at the teenagers who were teenagers when like the first three were out. Yeah. They've grown up a little bit, Then maybe they're starting to have kids, because especially praising on the fears of a mother. This will... Uh, I love it. And it's uh and then there
1: he's his uh tenure in the Scream series, one, two, three, and four. I'm sure that if he were one,
2: two and four bangers. Three eh I mean, that, Scream Three sucks. Yeah. I there's no way to try to save it. If
1: do you think if Wes Craven were still alive, would he <clears throat> if he have helmed the
2: most recent Scream movies? I or I think at some point it'd be just, yeah, like if the check was good enough. Yeah, but do you think they would have wanted him to? I think they they probably. Oh yeah, they the cat for the cachet alone of his name, they would have wanted him yeah, to. I think
1: one of the requirements is that they they for these last couple, they wanted them to be safe bets. Well, pretty so pretty much
2: everybody's abandoned ship on the new one, so I'm. Pretty well, sure.
1: I'm saying that like from a budgetary standpoint, they they may have ended up going the same direction just because. Wes Craven even though like you know he's
2: gonna he's his price tags higher than those uh ready or not guys. exactly I still think I still think they would have went because I mean there's no need to make part four and they still got Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson for part four I'm sure somebody else could have done a bang up job
1: well uh, what what, Wes Craven brings to
2: all these movies and this to tie it back into this movie too the the magic secret sauce of a Wes Craven slasher is he makes you care about, or may, not, maybe not care, but he makes all the victims people. They're not just you know teens waiting to get slashed. And
1: I think that's one of the stronger qualities of a Nightmare on Elm Street Part One to maybe some of the sequels, and this is the de- a debatable point because people like the ridiculousness, oh, but there, there's so much matter of fact violence in Wes Craven's movies, yes. and it's not he's not trying to make you enjoy. And inherently, this is a, a series that kind of you want to have fun with the ridiculousness of another it.
2: Another explanation for the low audience scores in the I first
1: think one. I think some of that uh, absolutely is why. Now, go ahead, get your cross ready, because I don't have a lot of positive things to say about Wes Craven as a director. But before you crucify me, let me explain. I have a lot of respect for Wes Craven, and there are certainly much, much worse directors out there. But I think his strength was as a writer and not necessarily as in the visual department. He's the
2: opposite Rob Zombie. Yes. Yeah, Rob Zombie can't write for shit, but he, he shoots real well.
1: He, he understands the visual. Um, if you want to praise Nightmare, Nightmare 1, Nightmare 2 uh, for how it looks, you got to praise cinematographer Jax Haken. Uh, shout out to Jocks. He's a friend of our buddy, Mixedron. Okay, but now that I've got all that out of the way, I, I do have to fillet Wes's brain, because it's absolutely glorious. Glorious. His strength is as a writer, and um. writing something so unique, and we'll go through it as we continue on, Is is poetic, it's well constructed, there's a literary quality to the way he writes. It's it's a little more pomp and circumstance than, you know, your average slasher affair. But before we get in the dirt, what is the scariest nightmare you have ever had? Since that's the foundation of this story is nightmares. This is gonna
2: sound really weird. This is a, a nightmare from childhood. And it doesn't even make sense why it was so scary. But I woke up and it was the first time in my life I couldn't make sound when I was trying to scream. I'm watching Scooby-Doo in my dreams. I, bear with me. I know. I said it's ridiculous and it doesn't make sense out of context. Which there really is no context except, you know, lynching hellscape nightmares. But the show stops. When I, I was in my dream, I'm saying something to maybe my sister or somebody who's there. But I will never forget this. Like they all turn around and like just like stare at me, and I start moving, and their eyes are following me, and then it's just like this ungodly demonic scream from behind me, and I woke up. Couldn't and again, I think religious trauma, and because I wasn't like five when I had this, this is like nine or ten. I'm not above some Scooby Doo. Fuck you, but uh, (laughs) I love uh, that. Would have been around the time of a pup named Scooby Doo, but this old school Scooby Doo. They look at me. And, like, the most hellishly, like, Amityville, get-out, demonic voice right behind me. And, like, I woke up and I was paralyzed and couldn't scream. Wow. So, the scariest dream that I
1: can remember ever having, and this it's kind of a similar vein where it is kind of ridiculous when I uh, break it down objectionally, But... When when I was a really little kid, my my mother would drop me off at uh, Miss Collins, who was my babysitter, and then, like, she would, like, get me ready for school and stuff when, when it was time. But she dropped me off at, like, 6 in the morning because my mom had to drive. We were living in Bean Station at the uh-huh. time, and she had to leave to go to Morristown, which is, you know, down the road. Anyways, I'd go there. I'd sleep for, you know, like another hour, and then they'd get me up and brush my teeth and get ready and go to school well uh miss collins's husband would get up you know around that time and he was sitting in the living room and I would sleep on the couch and he would watch tv and it would just so happen that um our gang or the little rascals oh, yeah. whichever you want to call it was on so i'm kind of like dreaming what's going on i had a dream that i was in a clubhouse or like a treehouse with Spanky, and Alfalfa, and Buckwheat, and we're like, you know, playing 21 Skidoo, or like whatever, <laughs> like, old Yikes. shit. Yeah, exactly. And Jason shows up. And it's the first time that I ever had a dream where I realized that I could control a dream to a certain extent, because I got to a point where like he, he like comes up and he chases and we're running around, and I just remember like I need a safe place to go. And like in my dream, I manifested my great grandfather's house and I run up the steps and I'm trying to get in and I'm not exaggerating. Even though I'm dreaming about Jason, something from Nightmare on Elm Street happens in this dream where I'm going up the steps and my fucking uh-huh. feet I cannot lift them. I get that dead weight feeling of not being able to move. Said this quick, man. Exact exactly. <laughs> so I, I credit where credit's due because, uh, that was one of the creative decisions that actually came yep. from Bob Shea and not, uh, Wes. So credit for him for understanding something that I guess is just inherent dreams where you, it's your body, uh, because you get like paralysis. Yeah,
2: and you can't move and you know, like you, you, you're needing to escape, but you're in a situation where, you know, your body refuses. Yeah. So both of our worst nightmares ever both involved IP for children.
1: Children's IPs, yes.
2: We really are flip sides of the same coin. You
1: know, I think it's true because, like, because of the way in which we both at young ages were kind of exposed to, you know, comparatively extreme stuff— that maybe we're a little more used to that stuff, and therefore the more mon- mundane became scary. Yeah. There's probably some psychologi- psychological element to that that I'm not quite worked through. Uh, next question. Have you ever been so scared that you intentionally tried not to sleep?
2: <sighs> no, that's usually my like body's pan- response to panic. It's like, just go to sleep. Just fuck it. Just go.
1: When I was a kid... Uh, I don't remember what year this was. Uh my one of my childhood friends, Josh Basinger, he had a like a sleepover birthday party, and we roasted marshmallows and, and hot dogs around a, a bonfire, and his dad told us this uh ghost story, and I don't remember the gist of it, but I the or the, the details of it, but the gist of it was that a head rolled down a hill and it opened its eyes, and that was the point where, like, it opened its eyes, and everybody got scared. So we're sleeping in this tent, and I did not go to sleep because I, I was freaked the fuck out. <laughs> to be fair, most of us stayed up because we're, you know, like, talking, you know, and just goofing off and stuff. But that next night, I'm, like, dead tired, and I was living uh, with my parents, obviously, because I was still a child, and the place we were living was on Mohawk Street. Oh yeah, eight oh six Mohawk in Morristown, Tennessee. And my bedroom, like if you looked at the window, it was at like ground level. Yeah. So like it was, we were kind of below, but like my window was right at the ground. And that night, I go to I'm trying to go to sleep, and I had to sleep with my back to the window because I was terrified that if I turned over, you see, I there it. was going to be a head there. And I, I mean, I eventually I did go to sleep, but I mean, that was like a couple of days of just like, I can't go to sleep. The head's going to wink at me. And now we're adults
2: me. and that's all we could do is look forward to getting some head. Exactly. And <laughs> sleeping. And sleeping. God. Suck me a
1: while. I'm asleep. God, like a, like a the good greatest. wife. <laughs> oh Lord. So the, this, okay. I'm um, we'll get a little off tro- uh, topic. Um, I think the strongest element of the story is that, Fear, at some point in your life, it's its absolutely universal. And whether or not it scared us uh, similarly or differently, um, there's this element, uh, de- degree, that it can seriously affect your health, you know, yeah. not being able to, to sleep. Uh, unfortunately for a certain Asian refugee, yep, literal nightmares were dangerous. Wes had this to say. The beginning of the Nightmare on Street really came up with a series of articles in the L.A. Times about a young man who were dying in the middle of nightmares. They were specifically from Asian Rim, and in this particular case, a young man had had several nightmares, and he told his parents, I can't go back to sleep. I'm going to die. I just know it. And the father was a physician, and he s- said, let me give you some sleeping pills. The kid didn't sleep the first night, and then the second night he didn't sleep again. Then it became clear that he was trying to stay awake despite everything. Finally, the kid fell asleep, and they took him upstairs and put him to bed, thinking, thank God this little crisis is over. But in the middle of the night, they heard screams and ran into the room, and he was thrashing on his bed horribly. Literally before they got him, he fell asleep, and he was
2: dead. Oh, yeah, that story's haunting.
1: So... This past year uh, was the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist. I was lucky enough to get to see it in the theater. It was amazing. Uh, For my money, the scariest thing about that movie, which we have a a retrospective in the archive. Go check that out. It's one of our best episodes. But when they're doing the medical test on Reagan's character or Leonard Blair's character, Reagan, to me, that's the scariest stuff in that movie. And there's, and, a, and there's a real killer
2: in that scene, but we did we, we didn't hit that point in the episode. That's,
1: that's true. But
2: uh, there is
1: a parallel in in some of the ways that uh, things unfold in this movie and in that scene. Uh, when I read Wes's c- quote, I, I think about the, how Reagan's mother is like well meaning, and she's like desperate to try and figure out what's wrong with her daughter. And they say that you know truth is stranger than fiction so I think to me knowing this backstory of A Nightmare Elm Street makes The Exorcist even scarier because you don't know how like this this kid's father was a physician so best intentions in mind and you know sometimes medical science you know for all it's positives, there are still elements we don't understand, and I think Freddy Krueger got this fucking kid. He did. This poor little Korean and see, boy. What
2: It was, it was the, the Tulpa energy before it had been given the form of Freddy in the Freddy movies, and then escapes as a Tulpa. Thank you Freddy. for using Tulpa. I really appreciate that. I wanted to work that in. I know you're a big David Lynch <laughs> Season 3 fan. I still need to finish. I'm just not psyched. But are we also going to get into the name, which is like the sickest burn? We, we,
1: we will a little later on. So, this this real life story. Um, I want to get your take on this. Do you think the real life story would make for just a great movie? I think it would. Like a, like a little hour and a half, low budget. not even indie like indie horror. Not necessarily even like maybe even a horror movie. Just like, like a, a drama, drama. With like
2: a little like a, like a, it could be like one of those elevated A twenty four horrors. I I th- they're kind of over those. They're actually looking for more uh, franchisable IP. Because Bo is afraid, bombed so hard.
1: Well, making a movie that long, uh, you're you're bound to draw the ire of uh, regular moviegoers. I like a twenty four, but you know, not everything needs to be so damn long. Um, in terms of just like a regular entry of the Nightmare series, I always thought it would be kind of cool if they had done a sequel to New Nightmare where you find out that the demon version of Freddy was actually what killed the the, boy the, the and real just the refugee
2: the, the, I accidentally
1: wrote your movie yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so it's like this like uh, cyclical Sick, cool. yeah where the the snake eats its own tail kind of thing um obviously like Wes took this idea from like in a much more fantastical direction he ended up creating one of the screen's most enduring and beloved villains of all time he had this to say what if there was somebody in his dreams that killed him what killed him what if it's this guy? My own Bible training of the sins of the parents being visited upon the children, that's the—that's perfect as something the parents did to him and just kind of pieced it all together from there. Um, Nightmare comes out of this, like, smack dab in the middle point of the 80s. The traditional slasher is still going, but it's sort of oversaturated, and they're really... There needs to be something new come along yeah. to kind of rejuvenate things. So, how important was Nightmare on Elm Street and just its fundamental principle of a nightmare killer? How important was that in the kind of pushing? the slasher genre into areas that maybe the previous writers and directors had not conceived of before.
2: Well, I mean, there have been other supernatural slasher type movies like Boogeyman in 81 or 2. That movie was
1: an excuse to see uh, rape.
2: It was. I'm not saying, but you know, like, but the overall just general and... That year even kind of had the the ultimate climax of the traditional slasher with Friday Four, and so it's something else needed to happen. Like it was just we could only see so many crazy killers kill so many slutty teens. We need a speak kill. for yourself. I mean the general <laughs> audience. It's kind of like how. Kevin Williamson added the meta aspect into horror. I know you hate, but you can't deny revitalized slashers again in the 90s. I did.
1: I just wish it hadn't resulted in a bunch of PG-13
2: pussy-ass slasher movies. I know. I I get it. But, you know, it it was time for some new element, some new ingredient to be added to the mixture to change the flavor. And it was hit perfectly. How long could
1: traditional slasher movies have dominated the decade, like, without kind of extending into more high concept.
2: I just said that the, the climax was in 84 with uh final chapter it might have petered it would have petered out by 86 like completely. Like you're going to lose money on a cheap slasher. Without the reinvigorization and like you know I'm not saying all horror but I'm saying straight up slasher there there might be odd hits every now and then without Freddy like typical slashers but no, it it had to have something.
1: I I think that they they could have, like when we're in the death throes of the superhero the superhero genre. I'm right sorry, now, the
2: Marvels was delightful.
1: I have no interest in seeing it. Um, Marvel just in general is to... almost dead to me. Like after, but my, let's okay. let's not get yeah. in, this, in this. My point is that since 2000, there have been multiple superhero movies every year eventually people are just going to get tired of yeah. seeing the same old thing even if you're making quality movies i think that slashers could have continued throughout the 80s but would there have been would there have been the the b and c level slashers proliferating in the way they did, no, would we have gotten you know a Halloween movie and a and a, a Friday the Thirteenth movie? Yeah, yeah but I, I don't think that like there's sort of like a this begets that, and it's a law of diminishing returns. So I, I think the eighties would have probably been about the same, but we would not have had you know the the second wave of quality yes. slashers that we got in the later part of the of the eighties. So quality aside, a lot of that is subjective, especially in um, slasher movies. Um, what what is it about Nightmare on Elm Street? Do you feel like makes it like unique aside from just the obvious things? I mean,
2: there's the obvious things. Robert Englund is like a massive little. He's like the he's the secret sauce to that. Like and like the. The cinematography's great, but, like, just the weird little, you know, this is God, and, you know, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy, and just the little highlights, and the the humorous, and there was humor in, like, the Friday movies, not so much Halloween until, like, the later sequels, you know, (laughs) which all all suck, (laughs) which all suck, Uh, but, you know, it it added some black humor, it reinvigorated, like, normally... Like the other slashers, the teens are in a place where they can't get help. They have no access to it. These teens are set in a situation where nobody will believe them and they're still going to die.
1: To the point where uh, John Saxon's character, Lieutenant Thompson, is the father of our protagonist. And he, he knows good and well what happened to Freddy Krueger. He knows where the bodies and where the bones are.
2: He's unwilling to believe. So they added something else to it. They added like an extra something that teenage audiences especially at the time can identify with Us Against My Parents, Teenage Rebellion. So again, it it that that's what kind of made it special. I can't think of any other slasher movies prior to that where like nobody in the Friday the thirteenth first four movies is like, Jason's not real, you're stupid and you know, and then like their kid goes against gets hit. It's always just like they're out in the woods, they're isolated. You know, but here you're you're at home. You're safe in your bed, and fuck you. He's still gonna get you.
1: Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Now, Wes, his religious upbringing has um, feel your brother has uh, definitely been a a direction that he's like put into his writing over over the course of um, his films. And because you and he have similar backgrounds, um, I'm kind of curious to get your take on this. Do you think having a religious background could give you an edge in terms of knowing how
2: to scare someone? I mean, honestly, yeah, a, a strong religious background. And mine was not as bad as, like, Wes Craven's. He wasn't allowed to watch movies. And, you know, his was so bad and stifled that, you know, when he got out and got freedom, he directed pornos, which I'd still love to see Wes Craven directed porn. Lots but, of booby traps. Yeah. <laughs> but um,
1: there's a Rube Goldberg you, you vibrator. Your whole
2: life with like a couple things in mind. There's an evil demon who always wants to see you suffer for eternity. He's going to make your life hell and try to get you to sin or hurt you. And then like the end of the world's coming. Jesus is coming. They're going to hunt the Christians. Seventh Adventists are real big on the 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 whole end times tribulation thing. I know the Baptists. And just it's, but it's like you grow up in a constant state of low level fear. All you know, fear God. Oh, they really mean respect. No, they mean fear God is what they mean. So, yeah, you absolutely, you're already kind of sunk that your core personality is just buried a little deeper close to your lizard brain that's always afraid. So, you could, if you access that creatively, like he did, yes, it gives you an edge.
1: So, we need, um, fucking Pat Robertson to make a a, a, a slasher movie uh, burning hell, he's dead yay All of, that, that'll make it even scarier oh, yes. Pat Robertson came back from the dead
2: him and Billy Graham are producing this him, mi- him and an army of demons <laughs> yeah evil dead Pat Robertson <laughs> 700 Club evil, evil dead said uh, I was gonna say evil dead dead
1: evil dead pastor there um, you go we'll those, get there we'll workshop
2: Sam Raimi get in touch with
1: yeah, us hey, We'll take, uh, we'll take a very, very
2: low... Um, handshake and a cup of coffee, you can have
1: it. Yeah, you got it. Bruce Campbell... Um, Let well, me touch the tip.
2: Of <laughs> his chin. Wear the, wear the chainsaw.
1: Wear the chainsaw <laughs> while it happens. All right, We're going to continue to talk about Wes as we branch out into other aspects of the movie, but before we move on, there's one quote from Wes that I want to read that I think perfectly sums up why he's one of the greats. The first monster you have to scare... With the audience, with is yourself, and I really think that stems from his religious uh, background. That's that that is a that's a quote that you put on your tombstone. I don't know why. I probably wouldn't still like a that's lot like, of positive. I hope that's not on his tombstone. <laughs> I want that on my it be, tombstone. Okay, I'll put it on yours,
2: but it should be like loving the father or Maybe something. Uh, you know?
1: I wanted to cite, cite my beautiful my beautiful,
2: beautiful beautiful penis fuck you, Travis. <laughs> Look, I got a real quick sidebar. I only got fifth place in the fantasy football league that I totally colluded with Brandon to make sure Travis didn't went on, but uh in the last game in the losers bracket, I did get to beat him.
1: Yeah, well fuck Travis. Fuck Travis. I came in third. It was the, the, the towards the end of the season, it just was not my but you know cup of didn't tea. You did you
2: come in third, second or first, Travis? That's right.
1: And we we live to see his demise. All right, the, the rarely obtainable balance in a slasher cinema is to deliver not only a memorable villain but also a likable three dimensional hero. In the case of a Nightmare on Elm Street, a likable three dimensional heroine. We have Heather Langenkamp as Nancy Thomas. I'm sorry, Nancy Thompson. Yeah, that's true. um, uh, her career uh not as in-depth as some of the other right. people but it's quality over quantity she was in the zz top music video for sleeping bag that's during the eliminator album era like they were at the, the height of their so. popularity uh 47 episodes of just the 10 of us very popular oh, sitcom yeah. now Meryl street three and new nightmare she came back uh, both as her character of nancy and then playing herself her. Most recently, she was in Hellraiser Judgment, which I'm just going to say, it wasn't that bad. It was much better than it had any right to be. Judgment. That's the one right oh, before yeah, the reboot. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, no, that was actually pretty good.
1: And then uh, most recently was in 10 episodes of Mike Flanagan's The Nightmare Club. Now, think,
2: was it, it was The Midnight Club, I thought. Midnight Club. Midnight Club, I wrote Nightmare Club.
1: I, was, yeah, I had Nightmare it's, it's on the fine. Movie. Uh, Heather is much loved by fans of the series and was rightly praised by most critics for her natural performance. Turns out that Heather didn't act as much. Uh, I'm sorry. Turns out Heather didn't act as much as she just drew upon her own personality. She had this to say: "I never felt like, oh gosh, I really need to take the time and develop a character. I really felt like I was going to bring myself onto set and that would be close to me as I could be." What results is one of the most loved final girls in the history of horror. Or do you rank Nancy in terms of like
2: best final girls ever? You're not gonna like this, but she's my number one. Are uh, there are arguments to be made for many other ones, but this bitch is the most proactive, sees what's going on, grabs you know, you know, learns okay, I can bring them into reality, sets of fucking booby traps. Sets it up to, you know, getting her dad's attention, and then just, all that is not what she, I needs. Mean, the key is in her, she's like, fuck you, Freddie, you know, I'm not scared of you, and that's what ends him. She's my goat.
1: I think the stereotypical answer is probably going to be Jamie Lee Curtis. I know.
2: I, I think that, man... She's the most vulnerable, the best screen, great tits. But, oh, they are you fantastic. know, until, like, the side sequel reboot trilogy, she's pretty much useless.
1: I think simply because the timeline has been rebooted so much, I think that actually kind of hurts her
2: in the long run. Part 4 is her best proactive, not part 4, H2O. H2O is her best proactive final girl and, thing.
1: And and, and hate I, I, hate I, that, I hate that movie. I know,
2: it's so 90s. But she's great. Give it up for her.
1: That's that movie was chasing the scream uh, thing, and and it suffers for it. I thought it's. She's great. fine. She's fine. I think Jamie Lee Curtis is a fantastic actress. Um, but I think that like when you're talking about like just in the wool final girls, it really is hard to argue against uh, Heather Langenkamp. What is it about? What is it about Heather that like? Do you think that they like? will, you know, we got to bring her back for part three, or when we do new nightmare, it's got to be I think a the, meta thing about her. I think
2: well, the answer to part three was kind of the pushback on part two, and I don't like this thinking, but I think this was their thinking that part two is this quote unquote gay, ep, uh, you know, sequel. That we, me and you both love. It's fucking your favorite. I think it's a but fantastic sequel. Like with having sequel. a final man instead of a woman, and all that pushback about the gay stuff, and Heather's natural girl next door. Like you want to protect her. She seems so vulnerable. But then it, you know, when push comes to shove, this bitch is going to shove. So you know, bringing her back gets the fans. See, look, we have final girls. This is the new one. Hey, look, we got this Patricia Arquette. We're not gay anymore, and I think that that was part of the reason I don't like that. That's that's on the poster. That's a quote. <laughs> we're, three, not gay we're not gay anymore. anymore. Welcome to straight time, bitch. <laughs> but uh, I think that was the reason, and you know, having she was so good bringing her back to kind of prop up Patricia Arquette. You know, it just made sense. Patricia Arquette, star
1: of Poop Porn. Poop
2: porn. If that had failed, but Part Three didn't fail, so. <laughs>
1: No one's going to get that. That's a deep cut
2: joke that nobody could ever hear because it's been wiped from the internet.
1: (laughs) I, I think you can make the argument that most of the best Final Girls are the girl next door type. In the case of Nightmare on Elm Street, it was definitely intentional. Wes had this to say about Heather as Nancy. Heather was interesting to me because she embodied sort of what I was looking for, which was a legitimate girl next door. The girl next door trope. It's it's like so present in like eighty slasher movies, but like why? What is it about the girl next door trope that like is just makes it so prevalent in this type of storytelling? Do you want
2: my honest answer? Yes. It's a bit, again a bit controversial. I don't like this thought, but I think you know you see super hot chicks in horror movies and like the bitches, and they're all dying. They're having sex. They're getting killed. But you know, and then you have your protest. It's a two point. That's a two prong thing. teenage boys going to these movies could probably fuck a chick like that in real life get them and actually date them it's not just sex and their girlfriends being brought to these movies can kind of identify with them like i'm not some skanky sex pot this is me i'm a real person normal not too super smoking unrealistic model hot you know does normal things and look oh she's strong and survives that gives the girlfriend something and it gives a, a, a feel of attainability, And I should say, not just fuckability, but attainability to the little teenage boys watching this. And again, again, it's, it's like, and even in a weird way that they can also identify because they're not super tough or capable, but that a regular person can get through a scenario like this.
1: I think that's a pretty good take. I, I don't disagree with any of that. Um I also think it just comes from the strict relatability that, you know, you probably had a, you know, a a meek, very kind girl that lived next door to you growing up. If you lived in the suburbs, you know, it's just, it's something that's a little more, well, probably Midwestern, you know, that it's probably more prevalent, you know. Uh, there's probably parts of the country where that's maybe less prevalent. But, I mean, if you lived in an apartment, there may have been an, yeah. a nice, you know, regular... The girl girl next are going to
2: be on math. Let's just be real.
1: Well, we live in, you know... East Tennessee. East
2: Tennessee. Um, She's uh, going to do math or know how to hunt and cook squirrel really well. Well, have you ever had squirrel brains? I have. Well, it's, we've talked about it, yeah. It's,
1: it's a thing. <laughs> okay, um... Just because she's the girl next door doesn't mean she isn't capable. Uh, Nancy proves herself to be like incredibly resourceful, and we'll talk about the booby traps later on, uh, but she's very proactive against Freddie. Heather had this to say, "I f- really feel that she's totally different kind of heroine, and I don't think she's interchangeable like a lot of the uh, other girls in Slasher movies. The character of Nancy makes two appearances in the original series. Uh, Heather plays a version of herself in new nightmare yeah. and then she comes back and, you know, and, um, nightmare three. So it's clear that what she's saying about being a totally different kind of heroine, it has to be true because I mean, they kept bringing her back, you know, it wasn't that, you know, she was just, the the, only, the default answer. I mean, they, uh, there was a reason there's something special about her.
2: The only other like returning final girl that I can ever think of similarly in a much inferior overall franchise is kirsten from hellraiser she's in one two and then they brought her back for like hell 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 yeah you know that's the only other one i can think of where it's not like sydney from uh scream who is the whole plot revolves around the first three four really you know so heather just being a returning Heroin in a series with interchangeable people, and it is just about you know, so that says a lot about how you know, magnetic the character is. Although she's a dumbass for falling for John Saxon in part three at the end because he's like, Oh, sweetie, I'm back, I'm in heaven now. And her dad would never have done that, no, and man, he's in hell, definitely. and he, <laughs> if he had come back from the dead, he would have had
1: a smoke in one hand, a beer in yes, the other.
2: Yes, that's how you know, if he's really in heaven. And then she gets killed by Freddie to make way for Patricia Arquette, who... Who may or may not
1: have done poop porn. Yes. <laughs> so, Nancy's relationship with Freddie, um, because she is one of the few characters to con- you make continual appearances, yeah. what's... especially, let's condense it specifically to this movie, what's special about their relationship?
2: Well, she's, again, this is early on in his killing career, He's just starting to extract his bloody vengeance, but she picks up fairly quickly. And luckily, her drunk ass mom spills the beans on why you know, by saying, "Hey, we killed this, you know, child killer. It was a crazy weekend. Uh, <laughs> I kept was, the glove.
1: I was wine drunk. <laughs> Dad, wine Daddy drink. was at Daddy was at
2: work, and I needed a, I needed a dick <laughs> fix. And her and uh, the can't think of the name but patricia arquette's mom from three and four they were both drinking together at at the murder um but anyway no it's like she catches on fast enough and again ultimately finds his ultimate weakness fast enough that that's what kind of makes it's like evil nightmare thing versus again the audience stand in finding a way to over and outsmart an implacable evil because everybody has to sleep, but if it's going to kill you in your sleep, you're fucked. So
1: I, I think it, it really boils down to like, that of of all the characters, she's the one that takes it seriously and is proactive. Yeah, um, you know, Glenn, Glenn, you know, he's he's fucking falling asleep he, in a in a crop top. He he just he's he's like sympathetic to his girlfriend, but not enough to actually stay awake and. And he hasn't been going days upon days without sleeping, so...
2: he could get a cup of coffee and be fine.
1: (laughs) Robert England has been very outspoken about Heather's contribution to the series and the necessity of the relationship between Freddie and Nancy. He had this to say, A survivor survivor girl, one of the leading classic ingredients of contemporary horror, Heather probably being the leading example. Hard to argue. Absolutely. Uh, We know from the movie that Nancy's mother and father were involved in a little vigilante justice by burning Freddie to death. However, it turns out that the relationship between Freddie and Nancy could have been a lot deeper if uh, one scene uh, with the revelation had not been deleted from the film. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Okay. So, they shot a scene, and for whatever reason, they left it out. And before we get down the... The whole pedophile angle of this, let's hold that off because that's going to be a separate talking talking point. But during the scene where Ronnie Blakely, who plays Heather's mother or Nancy's mother, they go down and she shows her the glove, she gives the revelation that not only did they were they responsible for killing Freddie, but the reason that they were so insistent upon doing so is because Nancy had a sister.
2: Okay, yeah, I do. I I, I have heard of that, and I
1: don't... and Freddie was responsible for killing this. So I I think that with this being excised excised from the from the overall movie, um, it's probably just to make the the story a little more streamlined. Yeah, but I guess my question is like, do you think this would have? Uh, given a little more meat to the relationship between Freddie and Nancy. Maybe like he sees Nancy as like, well, I got your sister and and now I'm going to get you.
2: I think I'm fine with the streamlined version. It's like, one bit. I mean, again, he is a child murderer in Springfield, Illinois, which is a small town. So Springwood. Would, Springwood. Springfield. What the fuck, Anthony? Shame on me. <laughs> that's I'm that's put a cigarette out of my penis. That's Ground Keeper Willie from yes. um, the
1: Simpsons <laughs> Halloween special.
2: But, uh, no, I mean, I guess it wouldn't have been that much of a coincidence, and it could have happened, because it is a fairly small-ish town, but I think it's unnecessary.
1: I I think it's kind of a cool thing that like it's it's canon if you want it to be canon and if you want to ignore it, you can ignore it. It doesn't really affect anything yeah. directly. Um but I, I just I don't know. I think it's interesting that you know, there's deleted scenes that could have changed your perception about things. There are so many memorable moments with Nancy in Nightmare One, but I think the one that cements Nancy in the lexicon of horror is the bathtub scene. Oh, yes. Where Damn do you, you? Where do you rank the bathtub scene in terms of like
2: greatest slasher moments? Oh, it's got to be in a top five, possibly top three, because I couldn't. Don't ask me to pin that down more closer than that. I'm going to say top five. Five think, or four. I think
1: you could argue that like there's so many moments in this movie that, that, are, are, so that are that are, are like not it. just slasher. They're not like mo like you could screenshot it, and they're not just important to slasher movies. They're just important to cinema. Yeah. But that shot of Nancy taking a bubble bath with the claw coming up between her legs it's fucking iconic. It's
2: it's, it's that's been parodied. It's been redone inferiorly in the in the remake.
1: It's the McDonald's logo of slasher yes. iconography. You know. The scene was shot using a bottomless tub, which um, they put like a they built a bathroom set on top of it, yeah. and there's a swimming pool below it. Now, reportedly, the shots with Heather above the water it took like 12 hours to shoot, and that's just Ooh. with her in the water. So she probably got real good and pruney yeah. in areas that maybe you don't want so pruny. Uh, the shots where Nancy quote unquote is pulled underwater is actually we talked about this a little earlier. Uh, Stunt woman Christina Johnson. But
2: if you're watching on VHS, you can't see it as clear, and you could still pretend.
1: I, I do every time. We're, we're going to do it right now. We're going to
2: pause it. And <laughs> we'll be back right now. We're,
1: as long as long as we can go shoulder back. to shoulder, but you, if, you, if you're if you back to back, as long as you're the, the back... like your shoulder blades to shoulder blades. As long as the back... <laughs> this is so stupid. As <laughs> long as the smalls of your backs don't touch, it's not gay.
2: Okay. And if it is, so what? <laughs> Just this is nightmare one. Nightmare.
1: Not nightmare two. Come on now. Okay. <laughs> <Damn it.
2: laughs> okay. Um, for that, we should have crossed streams. That's true. It's the only thing that could have made that episode better.
1: <laughs> we'll save it for the okay. uh, for the special edition version. There we go. For the anniversary edition. So in 1995, uh, Heather would be nominated for a Young Artist Award in for. Now, this is a mouthful. Best Young Actress in a Motion Picture, Musical, Comedy, Adventure, or Drama category for her role in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. The winner was Molly Ringwald for her performance in Sixteen Candles. Um, that's a legendary movie as well. It is. It's, and
2: Molly Ringwald could also get it pretty hardcore back then.
1: I love red, red-headed women and the scene where she puts the lipstick on. Uh, for the thing being Any in her cleavage. cleavage that's that's some hot shit so my, my question is like, do you think that e- even though like as lauded as Heather is in this movie that maybe that she, she was penalized because it's a it's a, I mean, I a still slasher see, movie I
2: still see if you even take out that slasher movie thing I still see why Molly Ringwald because that's a super mega hit that's also legendary to other people who care about cinema in general those losers. <laughs> like Jason, who always gets artsy movies and stuff. <laughs> no, um, no, like, I I, st- I don't... Yes, she was penalized. She was never going to win it, but at least she lost it to a worthy choice. I think this is an instance where the winner was correct,
1: but I still think there's probably bias. Was, there was play. definitely bias,
2: but it's not like you know, uh, fucking Jethro Tull beating Metallica for best heavy metal performance at the Grammys. It's not that.
1: We love you, Jethro Tull, but no.
2: I tolerate you, Jethro Tull. you got like three songs in my book. Tony
1: Iommi was in Jethro Tull.
2: That's that's fine. That that in
1: themselves allows them to exist. Yeah, that's true. Okay, uh, one would think that being nominated would propel her career... And to be fair, I mean, she did have a very successful career in TV. She was a good working
2: actress. But
1: her career, you know, probably could have been bigger. She had this to say, Doing Nightmare didn't really help my career much because people have a stuffy mentality about horror films. I kind of feel like what a porno actress might feel trying to tell everybody how great her movie was. That right there shows you how stigmatized being in horror was in the 80s. Um, there, there, even I think Wes Craven has said that the only reason he got into horror because it was slightly more respectable than the, the, the porn that he was making.
2: I, and I thankfully that's changed because now you have like prestige actors like Mia Goth who've done a lot of genre stuff and they're still respected as actresses. If you that's, haven't seen Infinity Pool. That's well, true,
1: but I mean, also, but I back
2: think, then she's right in the peak of like, she's at the, she's at, the high water mark for horror and porn was probably around eighty one. Like being just, she's probably a little more acceptable, but it's definitely not going to help her career. Yeah. At that
1: point. Well, I mean, there, there, there is the the instance in like one of one person from this movie uh, like succeeded. You know, they're starting off in horror films. We'll talk about Johnny Depp's rise to fame a little later on, but there, there was. This anomaly where occasionally somebody would uh, do do, do really well and then they would propel their career into the next stratosphere. But what is it? Why? Why Heather? Why? Why didn't she go on to be bigger than than she was? Or maybe she wasn't
2: good on the casting couch.
1: Fuck I mean, no, you, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, yeah, was she saying, not
2: sexy did, enough for her? She, she probably not... turned him down. She seems like the person that had the moral fiber to turn him down. I'll
1: well, tell, tell you what happened. Uh, what was her name again? Christ- Christina J- Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> and I'm joking. I'm, I'm joking. Oh, fuck. Um, I, I think if Heather had been 20 years old, say, today... The opportunities for her would be a lot bigger. And as much as I like to shit on Scream, I mean, they did kind of perfect the the pathway of okay, I've done a couple of you know TV shows. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be in the Grudge or a Scream movie. I know what you did last summer, and it'll be the the launching pad to more like more
2: movies or a TV show like more you
1: know. respectable. Uh, movies. I'm sorry, but Buffy the Vampire Slayer is not more respectable than than anything else that Sarah Michelle Gellar did. Go ahead and crucify me for that.
2: Self-punish myself. I watched every episode of that show. I couldn't tell shit about it. But I had a big thing for Sarah Michelle Gellar and Allison Hannigan.
1: Allison Hannigan is... Red hair, man. telling you. Uh, How do you think... Okay, I mean, I know there was still a stigma on horror... But there was such an opportunity for like, okay, you're not going to be in Steel Magnolias or like bigger stuff. But why do you think she didn't become
2: like a an in-demand horror actress in the 80s? I don't think she, I think she, because I don't think she, she was looking for anything else but horror. Absolutely. I mean, she came back probably when she needed the money for part three. They probably threw a good little hunk of change at her because she seems in all those interviews and like the, in Search of Darkness, documented. Anytime they're talking to, her, she's like, "Yeah, I don't really like horror. I'm just not horror, you know."
1: All this being said, she isn't bitter about Nightmare or her career. She had this to say: "I do like acting, but it's just not. Uh, it's just something that I do on the side. Being rich and famous is not a priority for me. I have my husband, my kids, my parents, my brothers, and my sisters, my home, and enough money." I don't need to be this rich and famous millionaire actress. I am quite happy with what I have, and I can't think of anything that might be lacking in my life. So,
2: I mean, good for her. And because of horror, she met her husband.
1: That's true. We'll we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, Nancy has been married twice. Her first husband was um, Alan, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Pasqua. Um, he actually contributed to Nightmare on Elm Street in an unintentional way. Do you have any idea what he contributed?
2: No, what?
1: He's the one that came up with the one, two, Freddy's coming oh, for you. I know that. How important
2: is this rhyme? Oh, it's think? super iconic. Like It's one of the horror cinema's most iconic, knowable things ever. Everybody knows that song.
1: I think in terms of just marketability, uh, that right there probably got them... At least a decade's worth of goodwill oh, yeah. with uh,
2: an easy way. It's so to, creepy to shorthand. You know, oh, Freddie's coming back. And it came back during the pandemic, during the real strong lockdown times in 2020. Because if you sing that song, that's how long you should wash your hands.
1: I don't remember. I don't
2: remember that. Oh, I, I found that tip online. Wait a minute. Okay, you're actually
1: releasing something in my brain. Didn't? Didn't? Um uh Heather Landkamp actually release a video. It might have been her. Oh yeah. man, that's crazy. Well thank you for helping the
2: world out in she you know, lives. of ways. That that song saves lives. So. I tell you right now, uh
1: I I've never washed my hands doing it, but I have I have washed other parts of my body. <laughs> to uh, what's her name again? Chris Christ, Christina Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, Nancy is currently married to uh, SFX artist and Academy Award-winning uh, makeup uh, aficionado David Anderson. They have been married since 1989, and actually proposed to her on the set of Pet Cemetery. Um, unfortunately, in 19 sorry 2018, they had to deal with one of the worst tragedies imaginable when their son uh, Daniel Anderson passed away from a rare form of brain cancer. Now, know I'm not that. a parent. But, uh, I'll ask you because, you know, you are as a parent, like, God matter. God forbid this ever happened, but like one of your children, they, you know, they, they died. Like we traditionally, you kind of want like it to be that, like, you know, as a parent that you die before your children and they outlive you. Yeah. And then there's this perpetual situation where the old die first but having to live with the death of a child, like, that's got to be the worst thing ever. Yeah, that's,
2: you know, I mean, I can't, it's unfathomable. It's the only reason, like, I give Zack Snyder any patience anymore is because he's had to go through that. And, but, yeah, that's why he left. Yeah, he, from when he was doing... That um, great Justice League movie. Fuck you. So good. The, fuck the Snyder cut. I want the, give me the 90 minute. <laughs>
1: I would, any, most movies should be 90 minutes, but yeah, it's just a terrible, terrible thing. And I mean, they have, you know, other children together and I'm sure that's a,
2: that's what keeps them. If you only only have one kid and they die, you have my, you have fat Tony's permission to kill yourself. Wow. I mean, there's really no, I I can't imagine if I see living for other children, like if one of Sarah's, like my stepkids died, my goal would be to keep her from killing herself because she totally would try and I'd be super sad too, but that would be my goal. But if you like, if you got one kid and they go on, and you can call it a day. I ain't gonna blame you. I'll dry. I'll pour one out to you.
1: The the views of Fat Tony are not necessarily those of. Uh, they are definitely <laughs> endorsed by now. Ransom the Black Lodge
2: That's LLC. The, that that kind of suicide and like a terminal illness suicide are the only suicides I advocate. All right. Well, I mean, if you're young enough to have another one, you can try again. But I I wouldn't. You know suicide by cop only though oh with okay. the bad luck
1: well th- yeah while cranking Ma- revelations Ma- by man, of war. man of war plays in the background or the alternative to that which i think is which is equally satisfying is that you do an ungodly amount of pcp you dress as the Hamburglar. <laughs> you rob a McDonald's, but not for money, only for hamburgers. And you get gunned down by a barricade of police officers, and your final words have to be robble, robble. That's how you die a goddamn legend. That, okay, you're you right. You will ascend
2: to, <laughs> to... Valhalla, free of all uh, sins. I was going
1: to say McDonaldland. Uh, land. <laughs> McDonald's
2: land. The big McDonald Back when they had the N64 and the play. The Mayor, peak, peak civilization. Mare McCheese
1: and, um, Grimace. and Grimace and the Birdie and the Fry Kids will be there to welcome you. Um, With
2: 72 virgins. It's weird. <laughs> I thought you, thought you were going to say 72 chicken nuggets. <laughs> well, that's what the virgins are. They're like for more fries, chicken nuggets. But that, they haven't been fucking. They're stop it. You. Stop
1: it. You're giving me a boner. <laughs> anyway. All right. Um. Heather breathes rarefied air as Nancy, and we get to see her evolve from your your typical American girl, um, to like one of the most memorable final girls. And objection, objectively, uh, Number and Elm Street is her movie. Oh yeah. Um,
2: and, and it's weird because it doesn't start off like that. Uh,
1: we'll, oh, we'll we'll talk about okay. that. We'll, we'll talk about that a little later on. However, as great as she is. And despite less than seven minutes of screen time, Nancy does get a bit overshadowed by her nemesis. We have Robert England as Freddy Krueger. We're going to briefly go through his uh, works of art here. The highlights. Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive, Dead and Buried, Roger Corman's Galaxy of Terror. He was Willie, the friendly alien in the science fiction series V. I absolutely love V. He was the titular character in Phantom of the Opera, The Mangler, Wishmaster, Urban legend, uh, Strange Land, 2001 Maniacs, Hatchet, Behind the Mask, Rise of Leslie Vernon, but he will be forever remembered as Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. It's hard to imagine anyone other than Robert Englund in the role of Freddy Krueger, but he wasn't the first choice. Uh, special effects makeup artist David Miller had this to say, David Warner was originally cast as Freddy, and I was excited because I saw Time After Time and I loved him as the villain. I was excited about working with him, and then last minute he said he had prior commitment and he couldn't commit to the later time frame and all that, and that's when Robert came in. I think we both can agree David Warner Warner is fantastic, and it would be cool to kind of exist in an alternate reality where that version existed, but that being said, do you think the series would have become. As big as it would have with David Warner as your main villain.
2: No, 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 not at all. Not even little. David Warner had a you know a career before this, and so did Robert England, but in bit parts, small pieces. You know, little. This was his star-making role. Not this movie yet, because again, as we know, they tried to fuck him out of part two. But like, no, Robert England owns Freddy Krueger. As much as I like Jackie Earl Haley in the remake, I thought he. Super creepy Chomo Freddy, like super great, but he's still. I'm still watching an alternate reality Freddy. It's not Freddy.
1: I think that they probably could have marketed the movie short term a lot more successfully off of his stardom, because I mean he was a well known actor, and that probably would have that would have probably brought in people that wouldn't watch it normally. I don't know that it would help the series on an ongoing basis because the type of person that's going to watch a movie because, Oh, David Warner's in it is not probably not going to be like, okay, well I saw it once. I don't need to come back for the sequel. Yeah. With David unable to commit, Robert swooped in and a screen legend was created. Wes had this to say, uh, I was casting for an old man because that's how Freddie was written. When I was reading older men, there was A softness to them. There was something about having seen so much of life. There was this tenderness to them, and far and away, they couldn't really be evil. Robert was much younger than I was looking for, but he just relished being evil. Robert is undeniably talented, but we've been incredibly outspoken. Uh, He's been very outspoken about how lucky he was to be cast. He had this to say, I have friends that are much better actors than I am, that had to quit the business because they couldn't survive the auditions or the rejections, or people just didn't realize how good they were. With Robert's casting, the overall design for Freddie would be changed from what uh, was designed for David Warner, and the inspiration would come from the most strange of places. Special effects makeup artist David Miller had this to say, the final design for Freddy was based on a pepperoni pizza. I was at a restaurant one night and I was having pizza and it was just this deep thought. I started playing around with the cheese, pulling around the pepperoni, and I actually made Freddy's face on the pizza. That being said, the Freddy makeup has evolved from for better or for worse, depending on which movie you're talking about, over the series. Where does makeup, uh, Freddy's makeup in part one rank overall?
2: Honestly, not that probably number four or something. Like, honestly, the, the makeup, the movie is great, but I hate New Nightmare Freddy. Face-wise, it just looks like a mask.
1: It is it is very f- matte and flat. Yes, and... Uh, Freddy's dead has that problem yeah, as well. The, yeah,
2: Freddy's dead. So I'm probably going to say, like, number four overall. Like, it's slightly better than those two, but only slightly. I, as a
1: kid, I hated, I hated how Freddy looks in this movie, and I think over time, I've come to appreciate it a lot more and the, the makeup obviously was, was best when it's in shadow and yeah. you don't really see him a lot. And a lot of the movie, that's, that's kind of how it is. And I, there's this one little touch where the, the ear is broken and it's like burnt, like crisp black. I don't know what it is about that specific detail, but that like has stuck with me for years so when I think about Freddy, even if it's like one of the later movies, I'm like, why isn't your ear black? <laughs> you do you have a black ear? Okay, um, a lot of people working on Nightmare 1 weren't hugely known, but David Miller was kind of a rock star at the time in the special effects field. Robert had this to say about working with David. David Miller was fresh off of Thriller with John Landis, so I knew I was in good hands because that he had this state-of-the-art phenomenon. Nightmare 1 is very effects-heavy, more so than a lot of slashers previous to this film. How important do you think David is in, like, the other special effects artists in terms of the success of Nightmare?
2: Well, that's one of the secret sauces to this movie. Like you said, adding the supernatural element, the original element, and a lot of other slashers, you know, it's machete to the neck, knife through there, even cool shit like, you know, uh, Kevin Bacon's arrow through the throat. It's still... This movie has a bitch getting levitated, slashed to pieces, in mid-air, getting flung around. It's
1: not just, it's not just makeup effects, it's mechanical effects. Oh yeah, the, and... the spinning
2: around like, it's a fucking jaw dropper, really. And, like, you know, there's some stuff that, you know, now in like 4K, like when he cuts himself in the maggots, it doesn't look that great, but you know, they look great for what it was. And it's a cool idea, but like, the body getting invisibly drugged. The fucking Johnny Depp's great death scene.
1: Well, we'll definitely be covering you know, individual elements, but I think that there, there are probably more prominent and well-known effects artists that worked on the films later on. David Miller was a big deal at the time, and I'm not saying that he's not a big deal yeah. now. But when His you name when when you bro. think when you think about you know you think Kevin Yeager and those guys kind of evolving the uh, Mark Shostrom like really evolving the the way that these uh, nightmares kind of unfold visually.
2: Well, it's because he worked with child murderer John John Landis. <laughs> you know that taint was always on him. Vic Murrow, child murderer. And
1: John he, Landis made the blues brothers. He, he can it. kill as many children as he wants. Hey, well,
2: he can no, he got his two and Vic Murrow. That's the absolute limit of he, your... okay,
1: he legally killed as many kids as yes, he could. But, he legally but, killed. But, but wink wink, John yeah. Landis.
2: I mean You have you have my permission. To, he has his own child hunting island, like where you like dangerous probably, you know, most dangerous games like of two all, or three toddlers a year.
1: Of all the of all the kids to kill, why didn't you kill your own kid? He's a little annoying. But didn't
2: he make Afterlife? No, that was a no, shame on me. The, that how was dare, I dare you? How kid. dare
1: you? How dare you? And I'm joking. I have
2: no ill will. I have no ill will. I just wanted to make that child killing joke. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> I just wanted to make a child killing joke.
1: Oh, we're we're reviewing a movie about child. No, murder. I mean, it's it's
2: appropriate. I'm setting the tone right.
1: All right, I think the success of Nightmare One is is sort of a shared topic because so many people have contributed. But let's take a, pe- a step back to the Freddy character and his creation. Wes Craven had this to say: "There was this kid named Freddy in elementary school, and he would beat me up with some regularity. So the name Freddy to me was like one of those names that just brings up all these bad memories." Now, Wes's childhood bully is just inspiration number one. He had this to say about the Genesis, the other genesis of Freddy. There was an incident of myself as a child laying in bed at night, and I heard this mumbling, and I couldn't figure out what the hell it was. So I crept to the window, and there was a man down the street. Somehow he sensed that somebody was watching. He looked right up into my eyes, and I jumped back in the room, and I sat on the edge of the bed waiting for him to go away. And when I went back... He was still there. All right, long-winded. Wes's next contribution will come in the form of the attire and weapon. Let's tackle the infamous sweater first. Wes had this to say: "The red and green together were from an article on how the how the uh, the the, re- eyes, the, the yeah. retina." Uh, deal with color. Those two colors were very different for the eye to see side by side, so I said, great, that will be the stripes of the sweater, so I literally made him into sort of a painful optical illusion. Okay, so, we've got name from a bully, we've got this creepy vibe from an old man, and we've got this sweater that makes your eyes... a literal, literal eyesore. Exactly. Um... That's a lot of thought put into a character that has not very much screen time.
2: I mean, Wes Craven puts a lot of thought. He was a very smart man. I
1: think that, but that's why I think that the movies he made that really work, work. Because he, whether people even pick up on these details, like the Hills yeah. Have Eyes is a perfect example, where like the names of the characters are sort of reflective of like their standing in terms of their hierarchy. Yeah. You know, Pluto's the smallest planet, but he's the coldest. And Ruby, well, she's the diamond in the rough. She does, She's not like them. So putting those ideas in there, whether you're conscious of them or not, like I think that adds something to the movie that other slasher movies absolutely do not
2: have. Let's put a sack on his head. Sorry to rip on Jason. I love part two, but like, it's not a lot of fun in that. Now, the reveal and the dream possible dream sequence jump in was a little bit more original, but
1: I agree. You got to put the bait out there and see what's biting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, the, the, the sweater, uh, it's different in Nightmare One and, um, than it is in the, the rest of the, the
2: series solid color sleeves, right? Yeah, it's just red
1: sleeves. And, like, the, the color... It's I don't know. It's a more muted color than, like... like I mean, every yeah. sweater is different. Uh, number one, why do you think they changed this to a more
2: uniformed sweater in the... I think it just kind of makes sense to have the straps go all the way down, zhuzh up the red a little bit, pops more, you know, they kind of brighten the red up and the green. And, you know, it, it's a good eyehead. It's a definite uniform. You see somebody wearing... Red and green striped sweater. You know they're talking about it. You know it's a fragrance. Well, right? you're
1: like on my chair. Yes, I've got one on the back of my chair. I I feel like that. There there is definitely it is making something that is instantly identifiable. So that that is a absolute net positive, because when you're talking about marketability, having something that like whether you can see his face or not, if you just see. A picture, like, just tit level. You're know, like, okay, well, that's Freddy Krueger. Yeah. It's an instant identifying mark. It's like uh, Bozo's hair or, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking, I'm not thinking, uh, like... uh
2: Freddy's mask. I mean, it is identifying, I'm not afraid, Jason's Jason mask. mask. You know, Jason's mask, it's one of those things, you just see a little bit of it. Um. So... There, there
1: is this Gen Z kind of movement that is uh, that believes that Freddy's sweater is a, a little outdated, um, and I think this is something they struggle with through the entire series. There are a lot of promo shots in Part Three where he's still wearing the sweater, but he has this like long overcoat. And then in a New Nightmare, he does, he, have. He does have it. Um, do you think that maybe? they felt a little constricted by their own success of like, well, we, he has to wear the sweater. So we can't really change. I do too think much.
2: that was uh, it for a little bit. And then they were given a little more freedom since it's Tulpa, Freddy, not Freddy Krueger, child murder, you know, and you know, make him a little bit more menacing. They like buffed up his chest in that one, you know? And I think for that, the coat just works better, but no, I I love the, the sweater iconic. I'm not saying it's not iconic. Uh, but I do think he had a point. I, think the, I don't think they felt constrained by it. I mean, they were probably, hey, this is his thing, man. And it definitely works with the striped sleeves. The The original, like, every, I almost forget every two or three times I watch it, depending on how sober I am. Part, oh, shit, yeah, it's, right.
1: it's also not a form-fitting sweater. It's a little more frumpy in the first one. Yeah. And the colors are a lot more muted. I think for, like, in terms of, like, the cinematography, the way the movie's shot that sweater serves this movie better, but especially when you're getting a three and four, these are mo- much more vibrantly colored movies. Yeah. So having a much more vibrantly colored sweater, it just works better with their color MTV palette. MTV
2: Freddy, yo. Yeah.
1: MTV Freddy. Okay. Um, the next hallmark of Freddy is his signature and unique bladed glove. Wes had this to say. There was a lot of killers with masks, and some had edged weapons. What's the earliest weapon that could mankind would have been afraid of? I think it would have been the weapon of an animal, the cave bear, something that could have reached around the corner with those big giant claws. All right, I think this is going to be a short, short debate it's it's number one it's number one it's, yeah. it's the
2: most it, it beats Leatherface's chainsaw it beats well just Jason's everybody always says machete he doesn't really kill that many people with a machete machete
1: axe He's, it's it's yeah, a it's multitude fun. of different weapons but like it's it's a weapon that is only only, you, only used by him or someone you know trying to evoke like uh, what's that in Indian Nightmare on Elm Street movie oh, Mahakal or whatever yeah like, so, I mean, yeah it, it's the most recognizable, and even though, like I think some of the weaker kills in the series are with the glove are yeah. with the glove, I mean, you gotta kinda use it, yeah, you have to, but it, but it's great because it's there to elicit a mood because him dragging those claws yes. over the rails in great. the boiler room or or scratching a chalkboard, <laughs> like oh. it, th- those moments it's it's more about. It's more about the sound and the, the ambiance. Uh,
2: the implied in it.
1: So when we're talking about with the iconography of the of the sweater, well, you see that, and even if his face is not attached, you know it's Freddy Krueger. Yeah. The same thing could be applied to the glove in silhouette. Yeah. I mean, you're going to see the glove, and like, okay, well, that's Freddy Krueger, and that's that goes back to Count Orlock in Nosferatu. It just it strikes this. Really high contrast silhouette that is undeniably the character. You know, you're not yeah. going to mistake Freddy Krueger's silhouette for someone else. And I think that is a a brilliant stroke of just marketability and kind of creating a character instantly. That that's why is, you
2: don't have them come out of the fingers like hot dogs. You need the whole glove. I like part two, but I like, I, but yeah. I agree that is is not as
1: a little more ridiculous. I get the reason
2: why they did it because it's a part of his spirit and the glove was just an extension of you know, this. But anyway, the glove fucking rules. Right. And there's there are a great you know, I don't believe in fairy tales and perfect that's a great glove kill.
1: I yeah, but I
2: mean like all com- the be- part the best kill in the whole series is the Roach Motel in part four. Compar- and there's saying, no glove.
1: Comparatively that like I mean when you start doing ridiculous things the glove becomes a little we got, well, less hey, interesting.
2: The first victim in this technically dies by the glove, even though we don't see it, which makes it even better. That's
1: true, but this is also still the first movie. Yeah. And we'll definitely get to that. The glove's beyond amazing. It's just the best glory, uh, gory implementation. Um, Robert had this to say about how it affected his acting. How the glove affected me was it's heavy, and when I put it on one shoulder, it dropped a bit, and it affected my movement, and it affected my posture, and I immediately thought it's like a holster, I'm like a gunslinger, so there's this posture that became signature for Freddy Krueger. The glove wasn't Robert's only inspiration for the character of Freddy, he had this to say, I used Klaus Kinski, but I also used a bit of Jimmy Cagney in there that a little spread-leg strong gangster stance that Cagney uses was something uh, I kind of had going in the back of my head too. Now, we're both in agreement that Robert's incredible. Yes. Right? He's he's the glue that's held this series together through good Absolutely. and bad sequels. Um his performance is just fantastic. But he his his aura has extended beyond just Freddy. I mean we, we ran his his rundown, and he's a working actor. He is in everything from like high budget stuff, like new stuff like Stranger Things, to really low budget shit like Incubus. It's Incubus with a K. I
2: just watched him on Shutter and Midnight Man, or the Midnight Game. Midnight Game. It's really good. He's good in it. I, I haven't. It's okay. I haven't seen it. The movie's okay, but every time he's in it, feels like a real a realer movie. You know what I mean? And that's precisely mm-hmm. what I want to talk about. I, and I want to get your,
1: your take on this. I think he serves basically the purpose uh, that Vincent Price That's served. exactly
2: what it is. So, yes, absolutely, 100%. So
1: he's this generation's Vincent yes. Price. All right. I right. We're both in agreement. All right. There is one last thing we have to discuss about Freddy before we can move on to the victims. And this is a controversial topic even 40 years later. All right. Is Freddy Krueger... A pedophile or just a child murderer.
2: Okay, here's my thing. They always kept it to murder, which somehow that's that's bad too. Oh, it's certainly not good. But he gets a sexual thrill. Undeniably gets a sexual thrill. For, I don't know if he's raping them or just killing them. That's one of the things I'd liked about the remake. And if it'd gone one more inch further into the pedo. Freddy, I would have got up and left, but it gave me that part two, dirty, disgusting feel. But I think, in Wes Craven's mind, even though he knew that kills might be of a sexual nature thrill for him, I don't think he's a pedo.
1: All right. I'm not going to even comment on this. I'm just going to tell you exactly what Wes Craven says. This quote comes directly from Wes Craven's mouth, and I hope it will finally put an end to this debate. The McMartin trial was going on endlessly, a school for children where the children had accused teachers of molesting them in a very systematic way. In my mind, the killer of children is about the most despicable thing you can think of and the deepest and most profound portrayal of the innocence of a child. So, he doesn't 100% say come out, but that was definitely in his mind that the... I mean the McMartin, all that stuff was Case uh, is crazy, which we kind of well, not we, but this podcast touched on me and uh, Sting to Getty in the Trick or Treat episode, a shittier episode, Satanic Panic, but inferior in every way. (laughs)
3: I'll
1: let you go. (laughs) I think that whether or not it is at the forefront, I do think that it's supposed to be there. Does it's 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 there. And I think especially when Freddy kind of becomes the anti-hero of the series, that's something they wouldn't want to highlight because you don't really want to sell, you know, Freddy dolls and and action figures and and shirts and masks to children, but guess what, kids? He wants to put his
2: finger in your butthole. But there'll be a knife on it, you know, so oh god that's what i'm saying i do like both i don't think this freddie i mean he definitely especially like Freddy versus jason there is a thrill sexual thrill but it just seems he's just murdering them savagely which is way bad don't do but i don't i i think he's jizzing in his pants not in them well, uh, i hate to say it like t- that if, if
1: you take only one thing away from this podcast <laughs>
2: Fat Tony says, don't murder children. I mean, yes, but I mean, kill yourself if one of them dies. (laughs) If your only one dies. Fuck me. We do not. (laughs) Don't kill yourself. Uh, Terminal cancer, non-operable. You do you. I'm not saying to definitely kill yourself. Again, I I do
1: not not endorse. Brandon wants you to die slow and That is a call to action and not to Okay,
2: don't kill yourself. Fat Tony says, don't kill yourself and don't kill kids and don't touch kids. In fact, don't have kids. Spend all your money on toys and cool shit like Brandon. Thank you. I agree. Brandon's my fucking hero. <laughs>
1: Alright, man. Well, nothing like Kitty Dillon to knock the wind <laughs> out of the <a, laughs> sails of a podcast. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be back with more Freddy Krueger related nonsense in the form of his victims. Stay tuned. Kill
2: yourself.
0: This is actor, author, and composer, Blake Best. Here we are. Celebrating the 40th anniversary of the original Nightmare on Elm Street film, this film has had a profound impact on fans of horror all over the world. The opening shot of grimy hands constructing what is revealed to be a razor-fingered glove set a new standard for horror films. Include everyone into one universal truth. This was something that hadn't been done before. Wes Craven had created something totally unique and absolutely terrifying. The cinematography, the cast and crew, the makeup, and the special effects. This film was an example of taking a chance and standing by your decision. The character of Fred Krueger, played by the inimitable Robert England, became one of the most loved and reviled villains in horror cinema history and launched a multi-million dollar franchise that has remained popular ever since. The film helped me through a particularly difficult childhood and, later on, influenced my own career. I am an actor, an award-winning author, and a composer, and I have Wes Craven and the original Nightmare on Elm Street film to thank for it. All right, Nancy was lucky enough
1: to escape the razor-sharp claws of Freddy Krueger, but most of the other cast is not so lucky. So let's check out the victims of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Number one... After a ravenous session of jungle sex with Rod, Tina is drawn outside by the sound of pebbles hitting her window. She steps into an alley only to see a man wearing a green and red striped sweater with a fedora atop his burnt face, and his arms abnormally stretched from wall to wall as a glove adorned with razors, sharp blades, scratch the surface. What follows is an infamous series of nightmarish moments, including Freddy successfully hiding behind a tree too small to disguise him, chopping his own finger off just to get a fright, and even having his face ripped off as he cackles a witch's cackle. With Tina now sufficiently terrified, Freddy claws under the covers and Tina is clawed away at her prone body. Rod, who... uh had stirred awake by the commotion, is understandably confused, seeing Tina's body thrash on the bed and drug across the ceiling. Claw marks erupt across her midsection, and her body fall-prone,
2: plummeting back down. What do you give this kill? Ten out of fucking ten. There's no other question. Like, just the... This is the most... This is how... This is the kill that cemented Freddy as a fucking legend. Ten... Out of ten,
1: uncontested. This oh. this is one of the most iconic moments in the history of movies.
0: This is God.
2: This is God. What do you think about stretched arm
0: Freddy? The threaded?
1: stretched
2: arm thing, about, it all starts Like The pebbles at the window kind of creep me out. The elongated stretched arms filling the whole alley, clawing the one wall him hiding behind the tree that he couldn't hide behind like these present the possibilities of what would become later way more elaborate nightmarish kill sessions but this shows you the potential it's it's a it's a simple
1: thing but those long arms Is unsettled, it's so effective, and it's because they're being uh balanced by like fishing rods. So when he's walking, I don't know, there's this like dreamlike quality to like the difference between his body and the way that his arms bob. It's 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 nightmarish without being really anything,
2: it's just the vibes of it. Yeah,
1: it's just it's the way it's shot and the use of uh. Darkness and, and light and highlighting only certain things. I do think the face getting ripped off is a little on the corny side, but him chopping his finger off, that oh, is... Oh, yeah, just fu- look
2: the, at her the eye. Yeah. The
1: absolute glee on Robert's face, and it's just the the way that his face is lit right there is just so perfect. Um, Tina is played by Amanda Weiss. At the time, she was best known for her role in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Amanda has not only... Uh, has the distinction of being Freddy Krueger's first victim, but she's also an homage to Janet Leigh's character in Albert Hitchcock's Psycho. So, what do you think about the bait-and-switch uh, lead?
2: Oh, I love it. Being? I mean, I, it's very effective. Again, that's what Wes Craven does the best. You know, he makes their character people. You know, she's scared. Her boyfriend comes over. They, she gets her jungle love. But then, you know, I mean, she thinks she's going to be the center because, you know, the first couple scenes with Heather and all the other guys, they're kind of in the background. She's the central, and then she's just so viciously, horribly murdered. It's just so effective. I love it. I,
1: When Wes Craven does something right, he does it very well. However, and we'll, we'll touch uh, on on this when we get to the the Rube Goldberg uh booby traps. He does have a tendency of repeating things in his movies. And I think that whereas the booby traps may be a law of lessening returns, he does perfect the the Janet Lee kind of uh bait and switch lead in Scream. Oh yeah. I will I will give them full credit because marketing
2: fucked all of us up. Yeah,
1: that that came completely out of nowhere and
2: it does I don't think it
1: works as well in this movie because no. she's not a, a recognizable star yeah but you do spend enough time with her that when she she's the first one to go you're like oh shit where is this going and then you know we get Nancy and she you know the movie becomes a, primarily about her yeah oh man so the the best thing uh, of this movie uh, comes in a couple of different forms this reused revolving room set. Yeah. Um, uh, It's been used in a couple of other movies uh, of varying quality. The first notable one being uh, The Fly, David Cronenberg's The Fly. And I think it's used probably best in that movie in terms of just the way it's shot. It it looks very Uh, realistic. They use the nightmare quality to kind of work in this movie because... There are parts where, if you really pay attention, you can tell Tina's kind of helping herself move from yeah. like part to part. But that's it. All works just the way it's shot. However, the other movie that it was used on was Breaking Two Electric it. Boogaloo, and our good buddy Mixtron, worked on that. Um, I don't know if he, I don't know if he's told you this story, but he he's told me this story a couple of times. He has a tendency to repeat himself. But they're always good. They're so. a,
2: they're always good. But um, did he ever tell you the Breaking Two? Revolving story. Uh, I might have heard it a little bit at Frank and Con, but I was a little buzzed that time.
1: Okay, well, I'll repeat it because it it absolutely bears repeating. So, they built a set. It's this like this room where uh, basically they be all the like graffiti tagging would be, and that was just a stationary set, but. In in the movie you have the character that starts doing his boogaloo dancing and he dances on the ceiling and around the room. So they had they hired this like world famous uh tagging artist and he he went in to the stationary area and he you know he painted it and everything and this he's using uh right. spray paint, which, you know, if you breathe on a long yeah. enough basis, you're gonna start feeling it but then he went into uh, the revolving room, or maybe I'm getting them backwards, but either or there was no ventilation and he's in there for a really long time and they go and check on him and he's like looped out of his fucking mind (laughs) but he did a a perfect job he recreated his work impeccably almost like maybe he had uh, been huffing paint on the the rig (laughs) it's an occupational hazard indeed indeed um but yeah the revolving room uh, it's a it's a cool thing uh and i think that uh even though it's done best in the fly they do get to double dip yeah in in this movie we'll we'll, we'll talk about that a little later on but 10 out of 10 uh one of the most memorable kills in the history of horror number 2 With no logical defense, Rod leaves the scene of the crime, but is apprehended the next day while trying to (coughs) contact Nancy. While in custody, Rod sleeps in his cell, but his sheet slowly wraps around his neck and hangs him.
2: What do you give this kill? I'm being generous here, but I'm doing a four. Because you come at me with one of the most hardcore, fucking great, interesting, supernatural slasher kills ever. And then the only reason I'm giving it a four is because I like the framing of it that Nancy is seeing this in her dream because she's also asleep. So, you, you know, you see Freddy walk through the bars, but it's a four.
1: I'm usually the one to shit on things. I gave this a seven.
2: Uh-huh. Now hear,
1: hear, hear me out. Years ago, I would have given this a really low rating, but now I appreciate the sentiment of the the, the way that these these people are dying. The t- Tina is set up to make it look like Rod killed her. Rod dies making it look like he killed himself. Yeah. It Freddie Freddie is he's being very He's covering his tracks. He's covering his tracks. And I think that's just a simple simple explanation. And then maybe you could argue that like maybe why he's uh less successful in later
2: movies is he's doesn't give a fuck seems to be going really successful in part three he has that whole town fucked up
1: that's true but then then... he
2: tried to veer from that strategy in part two by coming back into the real world realized that was you know lame so
1: but again he had hot dog fingers though yeah
2: (laughs) that's why he's like oh my god (laughs) this is so lame fuck this back into the closet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no I mean yeah I mean I get why you know he's covering his tracks he's making all the deaths until like we get here later some people may or may not die I okay, don't know
1: well uh, two things I want to
2: uh, think whoa, about I gotta stop right there he totally shits on that with the, the next kill you like fuck clean up after myself
1: that's true that's true okay that's yeah, true you're
2: saying the two two
1: things I want to bring up about this. Number one, uh the scene where Rod is apprehended is the only part of the movie that's directed by someone else. Do you know who directed that scene? Robert Shay? Sean Cunningham.
2: Sean Cunningham.
1: So I think I did know, yeah. So, uh it's just he needed somebody to basically like hey, I'm ty- I'm not so tired, but were, I've got yeah. I've got things to do. Will you pick this up? And being that Sean Cunningham and Wes Craven had worked together on Last House on the Left, and he, he always had a reverence for Sean because he kind of gave him a shot when nobody else would, you know, working in porn, you know, and Sean was like, I don't
2: give a shit. I watched it. It was great. <laughs> and, and still kind of surpassed him, honestly, if we're being honest, you know, in legendary stature. Oh,
1: well, Sean, Sean Cunningham was not a... No.
2: He, he had one good he, idea. He kind of ripped off to make some money. He was
1: a, he was a businessman, not a, not a great director. Although... If you ever seen Deep Star Six, I think that movie yeah, that movie I mean, I is pretty pretty well made. Um, another thing um, is I want to kind of talk about like because like I rated this kind of high and you rated it kind of low, and there is a wide variety of kills throughout the series, and I'm curious just to get your your take on this. What is too simple, and what's too much in
2: terms of a Freddy kill? Well, see, it kind of depends on what era of Freddy, because in, like, part four, they just kind of, he can kill him however he wants in the dream, and then there's a natural reason they die in the real world. Part three, it's all attempted suicides. This one, it seems, what he does to you in a dream is happening in real life, and I think this kill is more of a target of opportunity. He's in jail. He's framed for the murder. He's like, fuck it. I'll have fun with the next one. Let's make this, you know, wrap this up cleanly. Although I would have thought it would have been more funny to have an elaborately staged impossible murder in the cops, but but you know it's also a budget thing too.
1: Yeah, it, I mean it it's all comes down to like you can he, write
2: you can write anything,
1: but you're you're going to have the budget to shoot it.
2: Rod is too little. That's a bare minimum one. Or or you can argue the Wizard King, but I like the little line. I don't believe in before that too much. Nancy or not Nancy, um. Fuck, the first one, her name, blanking, the first victim in this movie. Oh, Tina? Tina. Tina could be argued too much.
1: No, if, no, I think to me that's that, right. I think that's, that's right. I think that like Super Freddy. Super Freddy cutting
2: the paper and then he dies of some stupid shit. See, I don't like when they he can do whatever in the dreams and then something stupid happens to him in real life. I really hate. That's why part five is my least favorite. But part four also as the Roach Motel. The Roach Motel's the most over-the-top, ridiculous, needless kill in the entire series, but the best. they, they don't like, really say uh, what yes, happens. Yes, but but Freddie's all
1: about fear, and Debbie is terrified. Terrified, of con- though. It's con- the complexes. worst.
2: I'm just saying, it's, I'm, when I say too much, I'm not saying it like a bad thing. But, like, I don't know. But, yeah, I, Rod's is just really, like, especially coming off the heels of that frankly terrifying, imaginative, crazy kill... Uh, but I, I understand also why they did that. It's to still frame Nancy as the the protagonist of the movie because she's having to witness this in yeah. her dream. So let's keep it simple. Keep the budget low. To save that money for Bisquick.
1: You know, maybe maybe that kill is not as cool as it could have been. But you know what would be really cool?
2: What would be really cool? This right
3: here. This is Jesu Garcia, Nightmare on Elm Street's Rod Lane. In 1982, I was born with the name of Jesu Garcia, not in 1982, but in 1982, you know, people would tell me stuff. So, you know, part of the whole race thing and everybody is the god of opinion. You got to be careful what you're listening to. I was a young man then and very affected by what people said. I needed approval recognition, I went with Tom Fox. Not their fault, my fault. Tom Fox was my first credited movie, uh, TV series, episodic, and I think I had a Pepsi commercial. And I got my SAG card under Tom Fox, thank God. It was only like 400 bucks back then. It must be thousands now. To be Taff Hartley, that's a technical term. Which is a precursor to getting it, and then you got to pay SAG membership. So I then went to acting class, the Loft Studio, and uh, Bill Trailer, Peggy Fury, etc. Fantastic cloak class, got better at acting. <clears throat> and then um, I met a Svingali agent who was Michelle Pfeiffer's, Richard Gere. Later, Mel Gibson and uh, Richard was really exploding and breathless and Officer and the Gentleman. And I was hip pocketed, which means you're not re- you haven't gotten apart yet. We can't really take you on. But let me send you out on stuff, kind of like, you know, off the record, go show up at this place and audition. J.J. J. Harris was my second agent which is, it was Sharice Theron's agent. I came into his office. He goes, you're going to be Nick Corey. At the time, I was studying with Vincent Chase. And he told me, go to Vincent Chase, study. Then later, I would go to the loft. And I learned the art of auditioning. There's, there's acting, and then there's the art of auditioning. I loved it all. And I went, and he goes, you're going to be Nick Corey. You'll be Italian the last name ends with an I, C-O-R-R-I. I was like, okay, cool. My favorite uh, actor is, you know, John Travolta at the time. Still is, actually. So I was doing a lot of him, trying to. I, And it was... I, my parents are Cuban. I was born in New York. I was really an American actor by by birth. I don't believe in race. I... I think an actor is an exceptional creature and beast, one that shouldn't have any hang-ups. The thing about an actor is that we work so hard in getting to to know who we are, be who we are, and then jump into the characters that are racist or deal with their little problems. It does, you know, studying a character forces you to evaluate your own race issues or whatever that is. I didn't have any. I nor did I allow anyone to put it on me. I could fake it. You know, sometimes people judge the name. That was the problem. So my agent was smart. He gave me an Italian name. There'll be no stigma on that because at the time the big movie star was Ricardo Montalbán. There was not an Andy Garcia yet. There wasn't a Benicio del Toro yet although we kind of started together because we all seemed to do Miami Vice around the same time. Not Andy, I know Benicio did. Luis Guzman, all them guys, they all popped up from, you know, there were great shows like Miami Vice that gave many minorities work. I hate using that word. We should be actors, that's the way I look at it. So that was how I did name changes and then I hooked up with a good friend. my spiritual teacher, John Roger. I didn't want to be Nick Corey as I found out more about myself. I really just want to be able to face the music with my real name, which is Jesus Garcia, Jesus Garcia. And it wasn't so much race-oriented. It was like I was kind of embarrassed to have the name of Jesus, like Jesus Christ, and then I'm okay with it now. And then he said, well, let's shorten it. Let's give you a better... So we did JSU, Garcia, he did numerology on it. It had a really nice ring to it. Nick Corey was about a decade of Italian different types of work. I can do Spanish. I remember I was doing like a bunch of Latin roles as Nick Corey. And a certain Latin group that didn't like all that kind of crazy, like different people playing different parts they picketed me and sent me bad messages. I never got them, that I was later told this because they didn't really know that I was Spanish, I was Cuban. They went on the name and thought I was Italian, although my great-grandmother is Italian from Naples. But that's all political stuff I stay away from. You know, If you want to be an actor, for those listening, you gotta stay away from all that stuff and go for what you want. Um, don't let any obstacles stop you, go. The, uh, the death scene in Nightmare on Elm Street had, like, three parts. The hanging, which is where I wore, like, a vest, a harness that wrapped around my legs like a parachute, and a little ring in the back, and they wrapped nylon fishing wire between the sheet. The jail cell, before I die, I cry, and I tell Heather I'm emotional. That was the best scene and more realistic to me, and more authentic, I would say. The other stuff is I'm kind of, like, trying to find the character in myself. Johnny's the quiet guy, and I'm the big, like, Italian kind of big mouth bully. I really liked John, Johnny Depp's approach as well. Nobody knew who he was then. But it, <clears throat> that role was a, a jock's role, football player. And Johnny really downplayed it. And, delivered the lines very authentic. And that was a really nice contrast with me, over-exaggerated, overblown. And the dragging of my body, which was really a long hallway at, at Lu studio, they had me wrapped up with the harness and the sheet and dragging me like Freddy Krueger's dragging me. And of course they, they did the reversal of the film footage so they already had the sheet around me and then rolled the camera and the take as it would the knot would unknot itself and then pull away. They flipped the uh, they flipped it, reversed it, and it looked like the sheet was wrapping around my neck and choking me. And of course you had to you had to you had to shoot it like that and then reverse it. It's kinda cool. If you could see my eyes. Forty years anniversary coming up. God bless Wes's Wes Craven's family. I hope we get together and make some money. And for the fans, they just keep multiplying, man. The contemporary fans on my at my age, I'm sixty. They had kids and those kids are having kids, kids. And they end up at the shows signing autographs and I'm signing four autographs for a family. And it becomes human. And you, you have all walks of life driving many, many, many miles to come see you. You know, you're like you're a museum piece. But I'm glad my friends are alive. Robert, Heather, Amanda, all those folks that were not all the Nightmare on Elm Street. I hope we all make tons of money. Because uh, that's what I want to tell the fans. Reality down here is I'm not so much about getting famous. I am about meeting people, working and paying bills and making my life work and function. And on a, just on a basic level, you guys, my fans, Nightmare on Elm Street fans, I love the exchange of the law of giving and receiving. I love it. I get royalties because Nightmare on Elm Street fans keep watching the movie. It's a never ending thing and it's beautiful and I love you guys. Bless you.
1: Thank you so much, Shu Garcia, for sending in that audio. This sort of a last minute thing, and he went above and beyond. Um, I always thought it was cool as a kid that his last name was Lane. Yeah, that's just not a name you heard very often in in movies. So I've always had a somewhat of a kinship with him. And, uh, you make jungle love, too. So. I, I do. Uh, I've seen women get drunk across the <laughs> ceiling, and I ran away from that responsibility, just like I mean, he does. I you should. <laughs> All right. Number three, Glenn, in an effort to stay awake till midnight, uh, he and Nancy can execute the plan to bring Freddie out of the dreams into the real world. Well, of course, he falls asleep on his bed. As he slumbers, Freddy's arms eject through the mattress and pulls Glenn inside. What follows is a gravity-defying blood geyser to end all gravity-defying blood geysers. What do you give this kill? Let's get
2: another 10 out of 10. It's iconic.
1: I agree. So far this movie movie is pretty much home runs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, everything is memorable like even like I mean, you could argue that um Rod's kill is lesser um, it still has a great implication yeah. on the characters and the, their motivations to to stop this thing. Um, so, <laughs> um, the the thing is, is Johnny Depp kind of became the biggest star in the world. Oh yeah, and it's weird that like this this era was it was not the norm, but in retrospect, it kind of was because you had so many people. Go on to become really big A-list stars from these low-budget
2: slasher movies. Larry Taylor or Lawrence Lawrence uh, Lawrence Fishburn. Lawrence, yeah, Larry Fishburn Taylor. What the La- hell? Lawrence
1: Taylor's a football yes. player. He he headlined WrestleMania Eleven against Bam Bam Bigelow. Man, he,
2: he You're was in, welcome. He was in uh, Waterboy, wasn't he? One of those with Adam Sandler playing football. Anyway, I digress. Uh, No, but see, here's the thing. A lot of these actors and actresses you said that they were on 40-some episodes of this, but what really, like, this got him on the 21 Jump Street, and 21 Jump Street's what made him a star. But if this did definitely, like, you know, oh, that guy's dreaming, get him on this show about hot young cops. (laughs) That's what it's about. My older sisters watched the shit out of this show.
1: Twenty One Jump Street was was very popular, and it definitely uh, gave us
2: two good movies out of it. Oh, two great movies! Yeah,
1: great. I think they should they should make every one of those movies that they they joked the about making. Should be... they should have to make every one of those. <laughs> I'm I'm totally down for Lord Miller to crank that shit out. But uh, Johnny Depp uh, is he's iconic. He's not just. Like even like Kevin Bacon, like Kevin Bacon's a really respected actor.
2: Or um, he doesn't have a Jack Sparrow character though. You know he has a, like a, a, a franchise built around him again.
1: Yeah, he was in Footloose, uh, a movie where I agree that dancing should be dancing outlawed. Should be
2: outlawed, and he goes and anger dances by himself to process his emotions.
1: The cool thing about Johnny Depp is that he has never been never looked down on that. He was wow. in... Uh, he
2: even came back for Freddy's for, dead cameo. Yeah,
1: yeah. He uh, he always, always said that like he wanted to be in part three. Uh, he that wanted to have old. a cameo in part three, which I don't know what sense that would have
2: made, but he, you know, he... When she's dead and her spirit's leaving, Johnny Depp could come down from heaven and be like, come on, baby. They could have done it.
1: They could have done it. They did. Uh, they have... They It is what it is. So, how big of an impact, positive or negative, uh, would what I'm about to ask you had? So, Glenn was not the first, or Johnny was not the first choice for Glenn. Do you have any idea who, who it was?
2: Not offhand. I might know it somewhere in the depths, but no.
1: Well, these days, he's known for his tiger blood and AIDS. <laughs> Charlie Sheen. Uh, Bob Shea had this to say. Charlie Sheen wanted the role, but he wanted 3000 bucks a week, and we didn't have it. So... How how drastically different would the movie have been? It
2: would have been, because, I mean, Charlie Sheen always brings, like, a Charlie, like, not the crazy Charlie Sheen, but 80s Charlie Sheen still had, like, a, I don't, he couldn't have been kind of the goofus that Je, Johnny Depp was, like, at the slumber party with the sound effects and all yeah. that. I don't think he... It would have, it wouldn't have played right. They would have had to totally change it up. And Even that was,
1: though like Johnny Depp, like in real life, is considered to be like the coolest guy in the room. Yeah, he, he can, really does. It up. He doesn't play that at all in this movie. Killy's like he's
2: rocking that awesome sports uh, crop top in his bed <laughs> with a TV
1: watching. Oh uh, no, that's earlier. Like, she's watching Evil, Evil Dead. Dead later. I'm, I'm getting my yeah. moments mixed up. But he's yeah. It, I I I I think Charlie Sheen is fantastic. Um, I think he could have done perfectly fine, but the chemistry between Heather and Johnny, I I think I think she probably would have been like, hey, Johnny that?
2: Depp's objectively more handsome, and she was wanting some of that. She
1: she was married at the time. I don't
2: that doesn't keep you from lusting,
1: but I mean. That marriage ended, and it could have ended. <laughs> it
2: could have ended that day.
1: And I guarantee you, one hundred percent, without knowing uh, Heather Land personally, that she wouldn't have not shit in your bed like your actual wife <laughs> did. Guess,
2: no, she would not. <laughs>
1: All right, number four, Nancy prepares for her final battle with Freddy by setting up a series of Home Alone-style Rube Goldberg shenanigans before falling asleep in an effort to bring him out of the dream world and into reality. Nancy wanders to the basement of her house and finds a door that leads to Freddy's boiler room. Freddy gives chase, knocking Nancy from a platform somehow back to the lawn of her house. It's a dream. Go with it. As the alarm uh, on uh, her wristwatch goes off, uh, uh, Freddy lunges and uh, grabs a hold, and they wake up in her bed. What follows is uh, some Scooby-Doo-level shenanigans with Freddy getting a glass coffee pot busted over his head. Uh, he gets popped Sledge. in the chest yeah. with a booby trap sledgehammer, he gets knocked over backwards down the stairs, trips over a wire that has... <laughs> explodes a, a an exploding floor lamp. He gets doused with gasoline and lit on fire. By the way, uh, shout out to the stuntman who did that because he falls. That was not in the script. Oh shit! And he just kept going with it. So when he falls and gets back up and keeps going, he saved them. It's a trooper. Uh, like thousands oh, of yeah. dollars Resetting to reset So yeah. big ups to him. However, Freddy turns <laughs> turns lemons into lemonade while he's on fire, and simply lays on Nancy's mother, um, which burns her to death. I I think, but I'm not really sure because her charred corpse like sinks into a blue smoky abyss. Like wh- what? That,
2: yeah. <laughs> what do you give this kill? I, I'm going to give it a, a six out of six and a half out of ten because it's cool and the visuals are cool but like what the fuck <laughs> and i think this is the indicator that they're still in the dream i i yeah. agree and that's
1: why i'm only giving this a 5 out of 10 that's pretty close i i to me like this whole series of events which we'll talk about the the booby traps in a second but like the 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 shot of the corpse going into the bed like it's very very cinematic the blue smoke and the light, it, it actually kind of feels like something out of Ghostbusters. Yeah. So I, I really dig that. But it also makes no fucking sense because you went to great lengths to get Freddie into the real world, but he's still acting on. Well, that's so, to
2: show you that what's going on is in the dream. She never woke up. She never like, that's always what fair enough. But at, at that point, at the point you're you're led to believe in it jars your back,
1: yeah, and, so it, and it's
2: only on fifth or sixth viewing that you realize that's why it works, so i there's a lot to unpack here, um
1: let's talk about Ronnie Blakely really quickly. Uh, Golden Globe winner. Glo- I can't talk. Golden, Golden Globe. Globe winner and Oscar nominee, Ronnie Blakely plays Nancy's mother, the alcoholic who um is
2: bedridden and yeah. uh, and boozed up for the majority of the movie. Well, and, I mean, that's one element that the the cutout dead sister thing might have informed her character better. And why is she such an alcoholic drunk? Well, you know? I mean, she did. Uh, I mean, killing a man's family. I, w- I wouldn't lose two seconds of sleep if I set a child murder on fire. I thought you were going to say, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't lose two seconds if I set a child on fire. No, if I set a child murder on fire, I'd roast marshmallows. We'd go have a beer and like, hey, man, I'll see you later. <laughs> but I get why it's supposed to have <laughs> fucked her up. And in fact, it's probably, uh, was it Kirsten? Is that her character's name in three and four? Kirsten, yeah. Yeah, her mom that gave her her first drink of alcohol that night and set her because that lady's just such a bitch that she killed her daughter. She's responsible for Nancy's mom being a drunk. Oh, my God. It's all her fault. This whole It was her idea to go do the vigilante justice against uh Fred. Fair enough. She did it all. Everybody that dies, it's that, all her fault.
1: Uh, uh, shout out to our buddy Blake Best. We need you to write a... uh a Freddy <laughs> yes. Krueger uh, prequel novel that just uh, deals with the suburban housewives day drinking and uh, their the in it, fallout of in their families. inadvertently
2: causing all of the series of events and all. Of, it's just short vignettes of how she fucks up everybody's life in all the sequels.
1: Beautiful. We need that to happen. Um, Ronnie, she, her cl- big claim to fame is that she was in the movie Nashville in 1976 and that's where she got her golden globe and her
2: oscar nod. You can't hear it, but I'm making jack-off motions. Fuck that movie. <laughs> I had family that liked that. and It's just it's not my thing and it's so boring.
1: I it's not my thing either. I always thought it was cool that like we had a movie made about a town I in, don't but I, it's it's not a it's not a movie that I enjoy. Uh however, one thing that I do think's pretty interesting is that she sang uh sang backup on the Bob Dylan song Hurricane. Wow. So, yeah, a little random piece of trivia there. Um, Ronnie's great. The events that lead up to her demise are debatably their quality. I mean, that, that's going yeah, to be no. that's going to be up to you to decide. Uh, Wes had this to say about, however, the uh, the thing that I think I'm most critical about this movie, and that being the booby traps. I had read this army manual called "Improvised Weapons," and it was all about how to make booby traps. There were several films that I did that had booby traps. I just thought they were fun. At least he's honest. Yeah. Good, bad, and different. Like, what do you think about them specific to this movie? And then we'll talk specific about other. Specific to
2: others. this movie, they're fine. It's like something you know what she'd have access to. There's nothing outlandish. You know, a shotgun shell for the black powder, a sledgehammer. They might, you know, her parents are separated, but you know, it seems like he lived there for a while. And
1: you know, the thing is, though, like. With a drunk mother around, like what happens if the sledgehammer knocks her out, well, or maybe she, she got
2: her an extra bottle that day?
1: Well, she so, did. I yeah. mean, she's she's extra in a coma. But this woman
2: day drinks all the time. Her whatever she has, Fat Tony levels of alcohol endurance. You're right. She just goes stumbling to the kitchen for a snack. She, and she she's dead. She's
1: trying to turn on the the lamp. Gets blown the fuck up. I think honestly that Nancy would have killed her mother much worse than. Freddie actually does. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So this this trend, I think, is for my money, is used best in uh, "People Under, Under the, the Stairs." stairs.
2: Yeah, that the movie. Point.
1: That movie is fun, and those things uh, add to the, the kind of the zaniness and the. It keeps the energy of the film
2: up, and in context, and character, it makes sense. I mean, it's still stupid. It doesn't make sense that these people have. But in the fiction of that universe, yeah, it
1: it's very much on par for uh, Gimp Leather Daddy to be <laughs> yeah. get his comeuppance yeah, via
2: Rube Goldberg. There's no scene in like Mean Girls where Lindsay Lohan just you know sets up improvised explosives at her house. If that have made would have that would have been great. That's how uh, they should have got rid of the one chick instead of getting hit by a bus, which is one of the funniest punchlines to a joke ever. Is just have her like face get blown off. Well, let's porn make lamp.
1: it. Let's do a remake called Really Mean Girls. <laughs> really
2: Mean Girls. I'm sure that's been a porn parody already. Oh,
0: some BDSM. But I, lesbian I wonder if movies.
1: Wes Craven directed it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so no, Tina Fey did. Oh, I love you, Tina Fey. So the, and then the other the other one I guess that's uh, of note is Hills Have Eyes, and I love the Hills Have Eyes. But I think that's the most egregious use of it. How would they not? Like, they're, they get real good real fast. They, I mean, they're. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what the fuck? At the very least, in on Elm Street, she has a book and she has time
2: to kind of prepare for this. Maybe they're just it, rising to the pressure. Maybe that they're really good under the
1: pressure. Of <laughs> There's no survivor.
2: Apple Scotts and that man he, after he escaped went on to form the band. What uh, Survivor? Survivor and it makes sense. Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, it's about <laughs> the events of <laughs> <laughs> shit.
1: So anyway, so stupid. I I still say that this is the I I saw Nightmare on Elm Street in the theater pretty recently at Central Cinema. It was an awesome experience. Um, I think this is actually the first time I'd ever saw Part One in the theater. Packed house, everybody just had a good time. Before the show, they showed um, Dream Warriors and the Fat Boys music video. Oh, so you're, yeah. just,
2: you're just in the feeling for it. Yeah, you got that hand job from that that uh, war vet. With the hook hand. Well, that I wasn't supposed to say that on mic. I'm that, sorry.
1: That was a different movie. That, oh. That's that's when I went and saw. That was um, Love Actually. I was going to say Glory.
2: Oh. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nothing gets a brings <laughs> out war... the I'm war vet. Just...
2: Yeah. MPT war Bay. Oh
1: God. Yeah, but everybody was super into it, and then when that shit started happening, people were enjoying it. But there was like, there were like genuine moments of suspense where people were really into the story. But as soon as the fucking booby trap started happening, it was like, you know, laughter. Uh, yeah,
2: and, he blows up. So, and maybe that might have been intentional. It's a cathartic release. It's her getting the upper hand. It's helping you release that tension a little bit. Maybe so. I don't know. I, I, I just feel
1: that like it. it's the one thing that negatively dates the movie yeah, and maybe if Wes Craven had not done that same thing in other movies, I would be more well, I agreeable West towards it. Whatever.
2: Let's get a Ouija board. Well, he can't if,
1: do shit now. He he's dead. To. He's <laughs> he's making porn in Valhalla with uh, uh,
2: May West, May and, West, and Brittany Murphy.
1: Oh yeah, that's hot. Poop porn. So it all comes back around. It all
2: comes back around to a joke they'll never get to see.
1: Okay, fuck. Um, we're coming. We're coming to the. I'm coming so hard. (laughs) Number five. Nancy bravely turns her back on her bed as Freddie claws his way through the sheets. That's another infamous uh, piece of filmmaking. Just that shot of him clawing his way through. That's th- to me. That's the iconic Freddy shot of this movie, with the exception of oh, the split arms. Through,
2: yeah. well, yeah. no. There's also like the great he pressing through the wall. We didn't really talk about that because it's not a kill scene. But like, you know, he's just like, hovering above Nancy. And,
1: um, I had that in my notes to talk about just odds and just ends. But let, let's oh, let's okay. t- let's talk about that right now before we get into this kill because I work. In a year-round haunted house. <clears throat> and up until maybe a year or two ago, we had essentially the exact same scare in our house. All it is is a piece of, like, spandex, like lycra material mm. stretched over a window, pulled so tightly that when you film it, it looks like a wall. And then you can press through it, and it's it's just it's a cheap, easily obtainable piece of filmmaking yes
2: i know what you're and about. then the remake i made mean, that's uh, that's the biggest flaw in the entire remake besides the teenage cast even great actresses like rooney mara just being useless wooden boards that you know even that like i even thought in my head when i saw that i'm like man i feel brandon fuck cgi I, it's it's one of those things it's like at that it point it's
1: worse it's yeah, so much worse just because you have
2: CGI at your disposal doesn't mean that it should be used no so. use it to do like they did like they, they highlighted like they made Freddie more like a real burn victim and had like green screened out parts that like a living actor couldn't do you know like the holes in the throat and shit like that. That's good use of CGI.
1: No, I still don't like the makeup in that movie. But yeah. but if you're gonna use it, I get why you'd use it there. But this movie utilized its budget in like the best ways oh, yeah. possible. So Nancy is has her back to Freddy and with a declaration that she is no longer afraid of him and she's basically uh, hashtag girl boss. Hell yeah! Um, Yas queen. If Freddy, Freddy attempts to slash at her, he turns into TV static. He, he kind of looks like um, like uh, Scotty beamed him up to the Enterprise, <laughs> and that's that's the that's the uh, fucking uh, Star Trek episode I'd love to see. Oh yeah! Can't go to sleep, Spock. There's a man in my dreams. <laughs> that's illogical, Captain. <laughs> that's <laughs> great I have a whole bunch of red shirts just keep a whole bunch. god damn it Jim you're overloading the the medical <laughs> bay with all these chopped up kids Man, I think somehow
2: we, Freddy's DNA mixes with Tribble DNA and it's a bunch of Freddy heads that are gooey oh my god like Freddy Tribbles glob.
1: oh my god Th- are, I need someone to make this fuck Blake I need you to write <laughs> yeah. another
2: story Freddy Tribbles
1: <laughs> okay What do you give Freddy's demise that is is and is not?
2: one of the two times in the entire series it kind of makes sense. You can follow the thought process. You know, she takes away his power. Because everybody else he kills, you know, because even Rod talks about references kind of having nightmares. He's building up their fear. And as they've established in canon, it's the fear that gives him power and the souls. She takes it away. She's the last one left. That he, that he's fucked with so far, and she's like, "You can't do shit, fuck you." And then she does that suck it thing from like the '90s. <laughs> they did a lot, but she does the whole X, <laughs> and then she fucking
1: Megan The Stallion <laughs> butt drops. Uh, that's, the, yes, that's, that's the that's the that's the closing credits. It plays wet ass pussy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Somebody needs to take perfect AI, and re- 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 redo this scene. But with that ending... <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I'll go ahead and... and oh, what, what I, 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 numerically rate it five. I gave it
1: a six out of ten, and this is why. On paper, <sighs> this is powerfully poetic. It's a strong way to, to vanquish your villain. However, on film...
2: You get beamed up. <laughs> it
1: falls a little short. I, I like it, but I have to be honest about it. It, it, th- you're right. This is one of the two endings that makes
2: like at some least kind of logical.
1: logical sense. But the the ending of part three, like come on, like that's visually interesting yeah. on top Take of everything. His fucking
2: bones barium, and bury him in hollow ground. Yes. But this, but this is instantly undercut. Yeah. <sighs> Bob Shay, I mean. I feel I feel him. I get why he did it. Well, I mean, and there are none of the alternates that are that make it in good. I, it all should have just ended there.
1: Before we get to that, I have a real quick quote oh. from Robert about the ending. Robert had this to say about his defeat: What the ending of the original Nightmare on Elm Street means symbolically with Nancy turning her back on Freddie is I won't participate in fear. The fear that Freddie engenders. Freddie's seemingly destroyed, and um, you get that scene of. Of Nancy kind of wandering around her house and then she walks out and suddenly it's a beautiful uh beautiful day outside. Her mother is at the door. Sober. And, uh, sober. Oh, I don't think I need to drink anymore. You lying cunt.
3: Let's go dab one now.
1: <laughs> and then of course you have your this uh beautiful like a Ford Fairlane or like yeah, you know like like an old, some old convertible. And it comes up and like all her friends are alive and everything's just hunky dory. They get in and Oh boy, um, the 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 top coming on. That's Freddy Striped. Right. That's I can forgive that, but holy fuck, Ronnie uh, Blakely getting pulled through the. That, you mean
2: that blow up doll getting
1: pulled? Through? Yeah, that, that from the porn film that yeah. Wes Craven made prior. I think I've had
2: this for a few years. <laughs> <laughs>
1: a few years a
2: little spunk
1: spies out. I mean, there it's. It's timed as perfectly as possible to minimize the obviousness that it is a dummy,
2: but that still does not mask the fact that it is a dummy. It should have been. It shouldn't have been a close up. It should have been a mid shot, not full wide range, but like step back, get more of the house in frame, and they maybe could have saved it a little better.
1: Uh. <sighs> Bob had this to say about the Frankenstein ending, because basically, the yeah. long the short of it is that. They all had variations on the same idea and it was dis- the decision was just to put them all together. We were uncertain about the ending. We didn't really feel like we had it right. No fucking shit. Yeah. Wes wanted the ending to be that Heather woke up in the morning and the sun was shining and she walked away. I've been accused of fighting for a movie that could have sequels, but that really wasn't the case. I just felt that the ending of the movie didn't send the audiences out with any great excitement. Well, the ending you got didn't really <laughs> no. either. You alluded to this a little earlier, so I think I know your answer, but was
2: Bob Shay sequel baiting? Of course he was sequel bait, a hundred percent. It'd be stupid not to. Yeah. I mean I'm saying it, it it does affect the overall quality of this film minutely. It's a it's you know, it's nitpicking, it's a horror movie, have fun with it. But it does especially undermine the gravitas of her her victory and survival. But you're a stupid moron if you're not gonna sequel bait. It's not like there's not been many franchises before that they know sequels work did they go about it the right way coming in no but they, I mean, they got I mean right. if you
1: really think about it like I mean this was the era where sequels were not they were becoming more common, but even in 84, like, it's there, there still was a stigma against sequels. And I think that's one of the reasons that critics hated Friday the 13th some more. It's like, what do I mean, you mean you made
2: four there movies? Were, there was a stigma, but producers knew, as Bob Shea is the money man, he's like, there's money in sequels.
1: Well, yes. And because they were a lower budget, like, yeah. they didn't have like this. Like, Paramount hated making those movies because they fancied themselves. We're, we're real. We 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 made Raiders of the Lost Ark and these other, like, real
2: movies. And then you but, made Dial of Death. No, actually, that was, a, was that Disney? It was What's Disney. Fuck, Fuck you, Disney. Disney. Fuck. You can kill yourself, Disney. I don't advocate suicide for anybody else. You know, don't kill yourself. That's Fat Tony's stance except Mickey Mouse and Travis Laster. <laughs> you all can both kill yourself because you're a bunch of bitches.
1: Also, and like getting pegged.
2: also <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I've never met you. You might be a lovely person, but probably not, loser. Uh, uh,
1: it, but it's it's pretty well known that Walt Disney um, was a was a big uh, piece of shit. Oh so, yeah, so. so I don't we'll have. We'll dig him up to kill to murder him. Well, his his head is frozen. <laughs> you you uh, if you go to that secret club at, at Disneyland and you say you say like it's basically the Bibbidi
2: equivalent. Bobity boo. I was, was gonna, his password.
1: I was going to say it's the equivalent oh. of um, hell Hydra, but <laughs> but yeah, it's the basically and probably
2: something bebby bobby and something anti-Semitic about Jews. <laughs> yep. You
1: know. Yeah. He was a wonderful human being. Fuck him too. Fuck Disney. Anyway. All right. So I want to talk really quickly. Um, uh, about our f- additional cast, I didn't really go into depth with either one of these people because if we did, we'd be here for fucking ever. But playing Heather's, uh, or sorry, Nancy's teacher, we have Lynn Shay, the oh, sister yeah. of Bob Shay. She has become a horror icon in her own right.
2: What is it about a good screw that really needs to make you take a shit? That's my, my most iconic thing from Kingpin. When Woody Harrelson bangs her as the landlord, she was in.
1: Ugh. She was in quite a few uh, Fairly Brothers movies. She was in what we uh, yeah. um, um
2: some, some, some about Mary with the fake burnt tits. Yeah, like the, the overtan. I love her. I love her to death. I love Insidious one and three. I like three the best. Nobody's ever watched it. The second one sucks so bad, it like, I'm not watching it. The three's really good. Four and five can suck a donkey dick. I
1: think she's proven that she's actually a she's very good.
2: good actress. She's fucking amazing. anything. There was that one, again, it's on Shudder. It's way deep in there where she's like some old housebound lady who they prank call and accidentally cause something. And she ends up dying, and her husband gets. Oh yeah, I saw that movie. Yeah, yeah the phone yeah. call or the call or something like that. Yeah, that was really good. She's like great. It. Again, it's one of those movies that feels more like a movie when she's in it.
1: Well, I mean, she's also not one to turn roles well, down. I'll but, but I mean, good on her. I, I think I appreciate the fact that she's unpretentious in the roles that Hell she takes, yeah. and you know, it sometimes it is. Uh, less quantity,
2: quantity over quality She always brings quality. She's not like Nick Cage. If she's in a movie, <laughs> Nick Cage will phone in some fucking movies. He then he then he'll give like 200% in other movies. Like Willy's Wonderland, he doesn't say a word, but he fucking brings it. And then he's in like left behind.
1: <laughs> no, we don't we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> anyway, no. It's bad when check. the Kurt Cameron version of yes, Left Behind is a better movie. Um, And the other Mm. one, and I feel really shitty and not, like, uh, elaborating much, but we have John Saxon, who was the star, at least in terms of marquee for this movie, playing Lieutenant Donald Thompson, the father of Nancy.
2: I feel like... Enter the motherfucking dragon, know.
1: Indeed. And, uh,
2: God, uh, Tenebrae.
0: Oh, um, yes.
2: And, you know, a few other... uh, Choice. I just watched that yesterday. I even put on Facebook, having a giallo January day. God
1: damn right. God bless you, Dario Argento, and your Hell giant yeah. forehead. Holds all the secrets. <laughs> 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 That's true. <laughs> a lot of Italian recipes up in the <laughs> motherfucking giant Craningham. Um with with John, he brought a gravitas to the to the role. Like he's a very he's a respectable yeah. character actor. I mean, he's like six decades worth of Fuck of yeah. roles. And he passed away in twenty twenty. Um I'm not sure if he died of COVID or if it was just being old, but love gave
2: him COVID. Oh, then meatloaf died of coke No, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it was. Do you know
1: John delayed? Saxon and and meatloaf actually worked together? Do you know that? And what? The Dario Argento oh. episode of of uh, Masters, Masters of the the Horror. Palts. Yeah,
3: that's
2: that's where meatloaf planned and Illuminati oh, confirmed. Illuminati <laughs> confirmed. No, I love John Saxon. It's he's great. He's great in Part Three, and he brings. He's such a good actor. Like he's the straight laced cop dad in this. And in the third, he's the drunk loser security guard who's lost it all, and brings like I it's think, still the same guy. But
1: I think his performance in three is the best oh, because yeah. he gets a little you get more screen time. He gets a little well, it isn't even that he just gets he gets a little more meat on the bone in terms of like what his role is. And I I kind of wished that there was more of of. Heather's character and and him interacting because we get quite a few of Ronnie Blakely, you know, the mother yeah. and the daughter, but the father is complicit in all that too. And like I, I think that there could they could have been more of a budding of heads. I mean, there is that it's there. I just wish there maybe was a little more. You could have tacked on, you know, maybe two scenes. Um, yeah, three,
2: four minutes of. Not even like full, you know, real short, three minutes extra footage.
1: I, I mean, he's very utilitarian in his approach because he he he, say, he he uses his daughter as bait to to get a guy that he believes murdered her friend.
2: Well, he doesn't let her; she sets up the situation.
1: Well, n- no, they're oh, they're following yeah. her on purpose because he. He's like that's true. He's like, Don't go to don't go to school. I'm going to school. Okay, I'm gonna have you followed because I know this, well, he, this he dirt bag is gonna
2: and he's right. That that scum <laughs> <laughs> that bad boy with a leather jacket with premarital sex.
1: Who he loved because he participated in the yes, podcast. Did. I'm
2: just saying the character, <laughs> that's what the dad's gonna think. Fucking, you know, all the only thing he's guilty of is being tough, having a kick ass leather jacket and fucking like a beast. <laughs> Fuck, like a beast! <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, before we close out, uh, I just want to talk about some odds and ends uh, of the movie. I, I always feel like it is, as much of, like, I write these, like, huge... I don't know at one point these notes were, like, 19 pages, and I scaled it back to 15 because I, I am... Cognizant of the fact that you are sometimes endured to listen to these, you know, hours long episodes, you're
2: welcome, but touch yourself to me.
1: But I always feel like the best research, there's going to be things that fall between the cracks. So, is there any like any things that like strike you odd about the movie that like you know that maybe we didn't discuss? Or
2: well, we kind of brought it up the Bisquick stares, like the uh how Fred was his bully's name and he ruined that name forever Forever He's, <laughs> fuck you. Uh you actually you know, we we've covered most everything that I could think of about in this movie.
1: Well there there's one that I didn't talk about and that's we have Roger Rabbit in the movie. Huh? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, in the Char- street clinic. Charles Fleischer, yes. a pre-Roger Rabbit, um, he uh, was playing just a
2: random doctor. And everybody's way too super fucking chill about a hat that is obviously not in the room, and her just waking up, screaming from a nightmare, pulling a hat out. Everybody was day drinking. That's true. They all knew about Fred, so they were all just trying to drink to like suppress the memories of their dead kids and their murder. And then there's probably like, oh, bitch loves David Copperfield. He's starting to get big around then. He'd already done territory. Let's drink Shiraz (laughs) and forget our troubles. Sounds like a plan. That's how I want to live my life. Well, I I feel like. uh, Work at a sleep clinic, day drunk.
1: New year, new me. Let's let's make that happen. No, I'm too
2: awesome. (laughs) Same me. You're welcome, people. (laughs)
1: All right, guys, that's going to close us up for this month. Till next time, the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast can be found on a multitude of platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Go give us a sub if you haven't already. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a sticker, a t-shirt, or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com. For Fat Tony, this is Brandon A. Lane signing off. Till next time, Rant Army. Keep marching.